This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send me a text at 2057. Send me an email at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Well, haven't the last three years or so been an incredible journey of discovery about ourselves, about our society, about the world, about New Zealand, about where we're heading, and a big questioning. And also, as we've discovered here at Rally Check Radio, a big listening, a listening to each other about what we've been through. And I find myself, and I think I find it with our listeners, that there's a a much better understanding and empathy and sympathy with people who lead different lives and different experiences and things that we wouldn't have believed possible or true three years ago or we wouldn't have dreamed of thinking now become oh yeah i get that two of the things that i discovered when i was an emp not just the two but two that i discovered as an emp all those years ago was how terrible a system our family law in New Zealand has become. And I discovered it through fathers coming to see me in my electorate office with terrible tales of woe of how they had been literally kicked out of their houses, kicked out of the family home, deprived of being and seeing their children and painted as violent abusers. And that the family court in New Zealand and the family law was upended against them. And to begin with, I didn't believe it because you think of justice and you think of hearing the facts and hearing the evidence. And I found myself going along to family court hearings as a McKinsey friend to some constituents and seeing it for myself and being truly disgusted by it. And I had thought the worst thing that could happen to you is you lose everything, lose your home, lose your income, and be destitute on the streets, homeless. But I realized the worst thing that can happen to you as a father is you be deprived of your children. And I saw that over and over and over in New Zealand. The second thing I discovered as an MP was, I'm going to call it a soft corruption, but actually it's not soft, it's just corruption. And it's a fact that we live in a small country and we're very easily led and very gullible as a people. And we have a very large government with enormous power, credible power. And I discovered that there was a soft corruption where mates would look after mates. And that if you were in the elite, you could get on the phone up on the email, and you could make things happen for yourself, for your friends, and for your family. And no one else could do that. The elite could. When I say the elite, those in power. And they'd think nothing of it. Well, today, we've got, I believe, a story that intersects those two. And we're talking today to Dr. Ben Sharp who's going to tell us, just in his own words, he and I, just he's having a coffee, I'm having a cup of tea because I've had my coffees for the day. And he's going to tell us his experience of being a father when 
a marriage doesn't work out. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, you and I have been chatting for quite a while, and I think I ended up doing all the talking. And the one thing my listeners say is i got to stop that. So this is your turn. And you started to allude to what had happened to you. And we're going to talk about it. But first of all, tell us who you are. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm Ben Sharp. Um, as, as you can tell by my accent, I'm not originally a New Zealander, but I became one. Uh, I uh, was grew up in South Dakota in the United States and then studied overseas in England, um, met who, who, the woman who became my wife there, and then we ended up going to New Zealand and starting a family there. We had three children. Um, both became civil servants. She worked for Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I would, I'm a scientist. I uh, trained as an ecologist and became a marine ecologist upon moving to New Zealand because I thought the terrestrial ecology was just too boring. So I decided ocean ecology was a was a more interesting pursuit. So I ended up working for Ministry of Fisheries. And you did and, you did big stuff for the Ministry of Fisheries. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be full of myself and, and and pretend that anything's big. I mean, we're all dead at the end of the day. But yes, I mean, at the scale of our lives, it was a it was a really wonderful period for me. There was five years that I represented New Zealand uh, in the Antarctic Convention. I was the scientific committee representative for the country, so you know, saw the whole process of you know, how Antarctica is is or the the marine environment in Antarctica is managed from the grassroots level of the science that we designing science programs and, and answering questions about fish and whales and dolphins and uh, you know various things and uh then presenting them at science meetings but then being the last scientist in the room when the diplomats take over and and transmitting all of that science advice into policy advice and then negotiating it internationally so yeah it was it was a wonderful privilege to see how that process all works out I ended up being the guy who you know led the design and negotiation of the Ross Sea Marine, Marine Protected Area which was a considered a foreign policy priority at one point and became kind of a big deal and once it was done everybody in and their mother wanted to claim credit for it, even yeah. though at the beginning it was only me and a couple of my geeky international colleagues. So yeah, yeah it was a really interesting process. And I saw, got insight into the New Zealand system and working with diplomats and seeing how it all worked. But at that stage, I believed in New Zealand. I was proud. I was really proud to be a New Zealander representing you know, us internationally, I always would say that, you know, because we're a small, humble country and we can't wield power to, you know, bully other countries on the international stage, it forces us to be intelligent and rigorous and fair and do good science and and operate on in, in good faith and on first principles, you know, interacting with others. And I never would have believed that I could believe in New Zealand so much and then what actually happened to me later which is what you alluded to about the corruption and the power yes, but let's um, get to that now yeah. I'm gonna force you to be immodest about yourself but growing up <laughs> growing up in South Dakota that okay. must have been a bit like growing up in New Zealand yeah it's like growing up in the in the rural part of New Zealand in in the part you know I my my, my grandparents on both sides are farmers uh, you know, I grew up with grandparents came through the Great Depression and were poor and worked hard. And I think that kind of, you know, influenced my outlook and my approach to things. It made me a hardworking person and, you know, appreciated real work and, um, but also had a tremendous love of the natural world and, you know, nature and ecology, which is what led me into being an ecologist in science. And, uh, 
and just curious, curious about things. And you're a hunting, shooting, fishing type of person too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think being an ecologist in a terrestrial place involves hunting. I mean, if you're, if you're an active ecologist, otherwise you're just an observer. Right. So yes. Yeah. Um, and and, and you also, we got to, I'm going to cut in in here and I'm going to force you to be immodest. Um, okay. You were a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford. Yes. Yes, I was. I was good at school. And um, I think maybe by the time I got to such a civilized environment, they're like, oh, my God, who let this roughneck into Oxford? But by then it was too late. They'd already admitted me. So it was and that was also a great privilege and a, and a wonderful few years of my life. I met some fascinating people. Had and that's where you did your doctorate. Yes. Yes, I did. But that's, yeah. I mean, academically and in terms of leadership, um, the Rhodes Scholar, I mean, the only one that I can think of is David Kirk, who was captain of the All Blacks and a doctor and a fabulous all-round achiever. And here you are, a Rhodes Scholar. So we're not talking someone who's, I mean, we're talking about someone who's extremely smart and hardworking, shows leadership potential, and has sporting prowess. Yeah. I mean, I, I boxed for the university. Uh, that was my favorite part of being at Oxford was, was being what was representing Oxford in, in, in the boxing matches. So yes, sporting prowess, I guess that counts. When I asked um, you earlier off, off air about boxing, about Oxford, all you talked about was boxing. Yeah. It's like a big deal to you. Right. And, well, and I didn't realize something about that. That sort of there tribal is. loyalty between men who who support each other doing things that require courage, it, 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 it changes you. And so, yeah, I'm closer to my boxing friends who I'll probably never see again than I am to almost everybody I worked with in the civil service. What does that tell you? Yeah. And boxing, I hadn't realized, we know about rowing at Oxford and that there's this sort of annual uh, rowing match, but you suggested to me that the boxing is a big deal too. Well, all of the sports have have the varsity match. Everything builds up to the yeah. final showdown against Cambridge. Uh, I wouldn't say, I mean, the standard is not the same as you would see for rowing. Like if you played in varsity match for for, row, uh, for rowing or, or rugby, you could go on and be a professional. We were never going to be professionals. Okay. These are like, you know, these are elite kids that come from Eton and who probably never done anything athletic in their life. And we have to get them ready to, 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 to fight in, in one or two years time. But, um, but what we lacked in sort of like technical skill, we made up for in fitness and determination. And it was a, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. It would be a fabulous experience to go from South Dakota to Oxford. And it was open my eyes for sure to the the history. And Mm. then the sporting, it would be, I mean, my, my my thinking is this. It's just this idea of being a young person going to this wonderful place surrounded by top people and academically in the best place and then the physicality in sport being tremendous level, but to be boxing, you know, like that's not rowing. You've got to get on a mat and this guy's coming for you. There's no one there to help you. And they're literally trying to punch you down. And you've got to defend yourself and punch them down. I mean, it would have just been everything, right? That time. Well, I think, 
it yeah, it, it's, it's why it's what sticks with me. It's why when we started talking about Oxford, it's what I ended up talking about instead of the school. But but it does. I think it it changes you as a, as a person, as a man specifically, because you face what is actually at a sort of biological level. And I'm a biologist, so I think about it this way. One of the greatest fears of you know males in social mammal social mammal situations is the complete loss of status or even exile that comes from losing a confrontation with another man yes. and you know you you step into the rear ring and you face that fear and ultimately you learn to never be afraid of anything again and i shouldn't say i've never been afraid of anything again because the next time i discovered fear was when i feared losing my children and that's what we're about to talk about yeah. but it does teach you not to fear confrontation not to not to be afraid of of people trying to dominate you or abuse you or, or or talk down to you because you've already faced it and you can kind of almost laugh in the face of people trying to wield power against you when you've actually stepped in the ring against someone who's actually trying to knock you unconscious with their fists you know it's I, people have i've had bosses shout obscenities at me and i've had judges shout at me from the bench and i've had authority figures wonder why it is they can't get a rise out of me and i think the boxing actually yes. actually prepared me for that i don't want my kids punched in the head but i do want them to have the kind of confidence that walking through life that comes from having faced that and recognizing that it's okay you're not going to i have die. seen that i have i'm not a, a boxer myself or fighter of any thing but i've seen it I've seen it with very accomplished soldiers who rose to a high level and did major operations. I've seen it with martial art exponents, and I've seen it with boxers who are thinkers, you know, not thugs. Yeah. And they carry themselves. And you have that sense that in the back of the, their mind, they're dealing with you knowing that you could never get in a ring and fight like they did. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's this gladiator thing. It's quite extraordinary. And funny enough, with my kids doing jujitsu, I can see it even in little kids that there's they're not fighters, right? But they have a confidence that they know they can handle themselves and their fears and their emotions. And that if it comes down to just them, they can back themselves. They've still got this. Yeah, I think that, uh, it, emotional control is probably the the biggest strength of, of uh, I mean, you mentioned your children, and I encourage my children as well to to at least at least become competent in this way. You know, when you're when your emotional brain is screaming either fear or anger or pain, but your rational brain still needs to, you know, if you if if your emotional brain takes over, you panic. And if your rational brain takes over, you choke. And what athletes have to do, especially combat athletes, is the two parts of the brain have to work together so seamlessly wow. in real time uh, where, you know, you can't you can't think when you're boxing because your your rational brain thinks too slow. You get punched every time, but you can't let your emotional brain take over or you'll panic or you'll get too aggressive. So the two have to be in constant communication with each other. And it's such a wonderful training for so many high stress situations. In life. I've never thought of it like that. 
representing the government in, in high stress meetings, you know, yes. like the, the fact that you, you, you have to respond in real time, but you have to stay perfectly, you know, composed and ridiculously over passive aggressive polite, you know, even when people are insulting you or, or trying to provoke you. I mean, it's just, it's about emotional control and it's wonderful training. And, and I, I wouldn't denigrate it to anybody at the same time. No. I now have kids and I don't want them to be, I don't want them to be punched in the head. So I was like, no. do I really want to encourage this I know. or not? I know. Anyway, yeah. And you fell in love. Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And, and, uh, we, we got married while we were in England, actually. Um, and my ex moved to New Zealand ahead of me because I was still finishing my PhD. So your, and your ex her. was, was a, was she English? She, we, no, she was also a Rhodes Scholar. We met in England and, oh, and then wow. went to New Zealand together. Yes. Great. Yeah. And, um, and then why New Zealand? Cause she got a job here or? Yeah, I was busy. PhDs always take longer than they're supposed to, especially when you keep getting distracted by boxing. And so she got a job offer and I just followed. It was kind of a lot oh, to see how it works. And one what was thing your PhD topic? I was uh, terrestrial ecology in Australia. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's an area. What was the actual title? Uh, it was the influence of fire and cattle on, on landscape structure in North Australia. I spent all my time, my PhD research running around the outback in remote Australia, measuring trees and lighting bushfires. Um, which was, I mean, that was an adventure in itself. There was giant crocodiles. I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was a wild time. And my PhD supervisor back in England had no clue what I was doing. I was flying around the world. My, my, yeah, I'm in England, but my, my research is in Australia. So I was off, off the radar for months or even a year at the time, kind of doing no it. No way. Well, I mean, they don't really keep track of you. There no. would be times when you would send me a, a, a note saying, you know, the, the academics here are really concerned. We haven't heard from you in six months. Is your PhD still happening? Are you still alive? I'd be like, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and, and I'd send were, you a discovery. So you and, were measuring the impact of fire on the ecology. Yeah. And that involved setting fires and then coming back and see what happened. Well, I mean, technically, I wasn't supposed to be setting very many because, you know, that's, they worry like they worry things can get out of control. But the truth, this is the flammable part of Australia. It's constantly burning. It's constantly yeah. burning. Like 50% of the landscape can burn every year. So it's not like the destructive fires no, down no. south. They're very low yeah. intensity. Uh, but it still has a very transformative effect when you suppress them. Or what the real answer was the cattle reduce the grass. And then because there's not enough grass, the fires don't carry. And then the whole landscape transformed. And so I could measure small scale effects by lighting one and then putting it out again with nobody Please. knowing because there was nobody else out there. Like when I was out there, I was, this is, this is a true story. The property I was on was the size of Belgium. And yet when I was out there, I was the only one. And that was back before satellite phones. So I was truly on my own. It was kind of wild. It's amazing. I got away with it. Like, you know, they shouldn't have let me do it. It was dangerous, but what year was this say? Oh, 97 through 99 would have been, you know, do you know what I love about uh, real talk is we have people on for a particular reason and you know, we had a COVID-injured army sergeant on, and then he got tell it talking about his life, and it just overwhelmed the story. And we have – there's no one that doesn't have an amazing story, but to you it's just your life, right? But when yeah, well, someone else hears it, you think, oh, wow, Rhodes Scholar. Oh, wow, Oxford. Oh, wow, PhD. Oh, wow, no way, Australia, biggest Belgium. What yeah, yeah. you know in the middle of the wop wops? I mean, how far away when you pitched your little tent? I guess were you from another person? 
Well, okay. At the, at the, at the end of the project, uh, it was it, the property had just been acquired by the military. So the cattle were all get, being shipped off and the feral yeah. horses were all being killed. And I just happened to land there in the, in the, in, in the transition between the cattlemen leaving and the military sorting out all the native title stuff and the legal stuff and moving in. So I just, I just hit the sweet spot where nobody was really paying attention. And I was the only one out there. I'd say, you know, at the farthest distance, if I if my truck had broken down, I would have been walking probably 80 kilometers and then having to wade wow. across a tidal river full of crocodiles to get back to a paved road. It would have been to a, a bad paved road. Yeah, that's, that's just to, to get to a road. paved road. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's North Australia. It's a long ways from anywhere. And hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You um closest and- I've ever come to dying was was from the heat in Australia on that trip, yeah. And and six. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um the flies. Just normal black flies, but so thick that it's the most disgusting thing you can imagine. And honestly, the biggest feat of willpower is to just not go crazy from the buzzing of flies because they you know they're crawling in your eyes and your nose and your ears and and you get eye infections because you can't blink them away they're so aggressive that you can't you blink and they won't even it's disgusting you just pray for the sun to go down because finally the flies leave you alone and it's quiet because otherwise it's just buzzing constantly that's in the part where there was lots of feral donkeys for whatever reason donkey manure is perfect fly and of course you know all these animals with their manure didn't evolve there. They don't have dung beetles no. like Australia does. And in some places they're introducing dung beetles precisely to try to get rid of manure so the flies aren't so crazy. Maybe it'll even work. That was 20 years ago. I should find out whether their dung beetle project is working or not. But yeah, when I was there and in some parts of Outback Australia, the black flies are the worst thing you can experience. And there was other times along the river where the mosquitoes would, would be enough to where if you were sleeping outside, you'd probably be dead by morning. Um, but oh, really? Not the very mosquitoes- often. Mosquitoes were that aggressive. Just for a narrow window of time, when the when the rains very first start and the clay soil all gets saturated and creates these little puddles, then the, the mosquitoes have their opportunity to just go mad. But then when the rain set in, like in earnest, then all that floods away, and then there's no mosquitoes again. And how does but it when you're out there in that build-up season, like October, November, and, and just after a rain, a week later, the mosquitoes are everywhere. It's insane. And how does it, how do mosquitoes kill you? Just suck so much blood. Well, I didn't try it. I had a tent, but they were bad enough to where you wouldn't even get out of the tent at night to pee. You'd pee in a, in a bottle and stick your hand out. And then when you pull your hand back in, it's covered in blood. It was really that bad. Wow. Yeah. Isn't so no, you wouldn't because... want to try it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? God, my. Oh. And you came to New Zealand, married, yes. what year? 2003. Not that long ago. No, two. 2002. 2002, not that long ago, 2002. Okay. And you're married and you were working in fisheries and yep. your wife was working in foreign affairs. What was your wife's first name? Are we allowed to know? Uh, do we need to? No, it's just I don't want I mean, to talk. I yeah, look, I'm just going to call her my ex. I think, okay. I mean, the problem is, is that. No problem. This is I still in the family court. There are some things that because okay. no matter what, they're going to accuse me of violating the privacy of my children by talking to you. This okay. is how the family court stays immune from scrutiny is by always okay. trying to feel the No, no, so I just thought I'll I try not to talk, get personal about we'll talk things. about your ex-wife yeah. all the way through. Yeah. So you um came to New Zealand, you were working at fisheries, she's at Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and you had children. Yes. 
And um, how many children did you have? Three. And they um, were boys, girls, whatever. Uh, two sons and then a daughter less. Lovely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. how lovely. They are. And they are. They're wonderful. Yeah. And um, you, you are a New Zealand citizen? Yes. Was naturalized. Actually, while we were on a diplomatic assignment, um, we took a diplomatic assignment to the South Pacific for a few years and was naturalized citizen um, when, when we were on, on that post. Okay. And then your wife's a New Zealand citizen? Yeah, she was naturalized before me. Yes. And your three children are born in New Zealand, so they're New Zealand citizens. Correct. Yeah. And didn't now, even have US passports at the time. At okay. any of this time. And you also have a US passport. Yeah, of course. I was born here. And my children are entitled to U.S. citizenship, but never, never actually received okay. it or passports. They have the citizenship by fiat, I guess, or whatever. Because but all this starts to matter, right? It With, matters a lot. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's just, you it, never it think very crazy. you're sailing along and everything's, I mean, oh my goodness, you're like the dream life to me. Well, okay. This is the thing, right? Anybody who's been in a, in a bad marriage, a bad relationship, they always can identify with the fact that people outside will say, oh, my God, you've got the dream life. And then you go home and you feel like you're in hell. So it wasn't, but for the reasons of the relationship. No, it wasn't the dream life because the home life was always, you know, was always volatile. But you do Is a good it, job of hiding that. It becomes yeah. your job to hide that from the world. So people thought I had the dream life for sure. It's a funny thing, isn't it? You learn in life never to envy anyone. Yeah. And you learn to never presume what happens inside somebody else's no. home or relationship because you, you have no idea. You have no idea. You can never judge because you have no idea. Yeah. What and happens behind closed doors is so different from the face yes. that you show the world. And it's yeah. very easy to take a good relationship for granted because you think that's how they are. Well, I'll have to take your word for it because I'm not ah. sure I've had one, Rodney. <laughs> No, no, that's not true. That is not true. I, but you but know what I mean. Fortunately, cir life circumstances were never such that the good ones could persist because I was yeah. always entangled, you know, on yeah. my, my well, home is here and they're there. Yeah, it is what it is. So now we're getting into the nub of it. So the whole point of that background, Ben, is to explain who you are because it matters to the credibility of your story. Okay. Because in truth, we're just hearing one side of the story. Absolutely. And, and that's always hard. Um, but when you look at your background, you're not a nutter. Um, you're not some person that can't hold a job. You, you're not dissolute. You're actually a very, very serious, hardworking, clever, fit, healthy, balanced person. Is all of that is that all of that is established. Shouldn't have to establish it, but for what's going to happen next in this discussion, people are going to be incredulous. I think. Yeah. And I well, wanted I'll to really though, with with one caveat to say that all of those things are also true of my ex, and yet we we it's not possible that we're both telling the truth. So I will go ahead and allow your audience to say, you know what? He could just be a really clever guy who can talk to Rodney Hyde on the radio and sound so credible and yes. hold it together in public and still be crazy in private. And I wouldn't even fault them for thinking that's still possible because 
not everybody can be telling the truth. And so I would not want people to believe me because I sound good. I would not want people to believe me because I have a PhD or I'm a Rhodes Scholar or I have held okay. down a serious job. I want to, them people to consider that evidence counts for something. So mm -hmm. it's not just what I say. I will refer to evidence. And mm -hmm. all I've ever asked through this entire process, whether it's the, you know, the family court or the property court or the U.S. court or any of these courts that I got thrown into, is what about evidence? Because I'm a scientist. I'm an evidence-based guy. I don't want people to be persuaded by the best speaker or the best resume mm. because the resumes of the people that are lying about me are even better than mine. They might be high court judges, um, but evidence should count for something. Mm. And as a scientist, and, and I, I'm an, I'm an evidence-based guy. I thought we lived in an evidence-based world and yeah. I found out that we don't. Well, that's a great point. So Let's hear your story in your own words about what happened. So um, my children were born between 2004 and 2010. My private marriage, I don't, I've already alluded to, was always, was always volatile and, and there were a lot of things, but we kept that hidden and, and, and don't need to go into it too much. Um, I always I have a very strong connection to my, my, my family and my home here in Dakota. And want always wanted my children to have that as well because I think you know people need a family. Kids need more than just parents, and so I did a lot of. I, we worked very hard to ensure that the children had this connection here. I would come home every year. Uh, I would bring the pull the kids out of school and bring them here as well, so they'd see their grandparents and things. And, we, and then we bought a house, so we had a home here in South Dakota, even though we didn't live in it. Um, had always had this kind of notion that children shouldn't be raised by strangers. Obviously, you know, she and I both have high flying jobs and can work very hard because we're intense, hardworking people. But I, the agreement had always originally been that we wouldn't both work that hard at the same time. Either I would or she would, and we would alternate. So when she wanted to go back to work after the, the younger children were born, I said I was representing New Zealand in the Antarctic Convention, and it was really intense you know, negotiating the Rossi Marine, Marine Protected Area. I couldn't step back from my job at that time. and but I saw that it became kind of untenable with us both working at hard and children being raised by nannies. And I didn't want that. So eventually I said, look, I will step back from my career and, and focus on raising kids and just be a contractor and work less um, because she wanted to work. And so we took an overseas assignment. Um, and, and in foreign affairs, the way that you move up the career ladder is by taking overseas assignments. You go, you spend time in Wellington, and then you go overseas, and then you come back to Wellington, and you get promoted, and then you go overseas, and you get promoted, and you come back, and you get promoted. So by following her career, she, you know, and she's very talented and very good at that job, you know, for reasons that might be considered good or bad. But uh, taking this assignment was was very prestigious move for her. And it worked for me because it got the kids and me closer to my family. So we took an assignment to New York. She was rep representing New Zealand in the United Nations. And I was going to step back, be a contractor, you know, be in our home here in Dakota with the kids every summer, uh, live in New York part of the time, fly back to New Zealand to do some work part of the time. I was going to be moving around quite a lot. Uh, but the kids were always used to that. And it meant that when I was there, I was just raising kids. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to spend time with them. And I wanted them to be, establish their connection here. And about the first, maybe first and one and a half years into, into the New York gig, 
um, our marriage comes apart and it's you know obvious that we're that we're not going to stay together in retrospect it was maybe obvious for a long time but we were kidding ourselves like married couples do and and so we're going to be getting divorced um we're still posted to New York as a New Zealand diplomatic family, but because I have a U.S. passport, even if I'm no longer a New Zealand diplomat, I can stay in the United States, of just course. To, sorry, just explain that to me. I'm, I'm, I missed that, Ben. Okay. You were effectively a, a diplomat as well. Well, you, when you go as a diplomatic family, you go on diplomatic passports and I you have see. diplomatic visas. Okay, so um, you were you were – you were a diplomatic family because of your wife's position at the UN. Well, and because we were only there in the service of the New Zealand government, you know, on the bill of the New Zealand taxpayer. I mean, I got it. You know, obviously we couldn't afford to live. I mean, it's the most expensive jurisdiction in the East coast, you know, probably uh, upper yes. West side, Manhattan, the, the rent in the apartment was $15,000 a month. My kids' school fees were $50,000 a year each, you know, and for no. elementary school. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, this is these are millionaires, you know, billionaires live there. And and so this obviously this isn't my life, but yeah. you know, we're a New Zealand diplomatic family living a New Zealand diplomatic okay. life. And it's a good life. You make a lot of money. Yeah. I, mean, I have to say, you know, diplomatic assignments, you, you I just find it odd. I find it odd that you're a dip, diplomat when you're an American citizen. I'm just thinking that through, right? So you're, well, okay, no, and this is this is an interesting detail. Was that after I got there, they said, "Oh, actually, because you're in your home country, you can't have a diplomatic passport. Yeah. Give it back." And I said, "No problem," and I did. Um, but that that was that was me, not my children. And they, and they and they did spot that. And 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 I asked at the time, I said, "What about my children?" Because it it made me nervous. Because I said, "Well, hold on, I'm not from New York," and. This is a very relevant point is that in the United States, every state is a sovereign jurisdiction. Yes. Different states treat other states as no differently than they treat different countries, yes. which is a nightmare for Americans in the family court, you can imagine. Yes. Um, but so I asked explicitly at the time, I said, what about my children? And they said, well, no, the problem is, is your right to work. And so because you're an adult and you have the right to work as an American citizen, a social security number, you can't also have a diplomatic passport. Got I it. said, well, fine. So, so we're still in New York as a New Zealand diplomatic family, and that's been made explicit, I thought. Yeah. So then as we're um, getting divorced, now suddenly I'm finding myself in a really unenviable position of having stepped back from my career, um, followed her as she's making tons and tons of money, you know, the, 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 uh, the allowances and the, the perks that you get as a diplomat in a place like New York. And, and I'm only making money if I'm working, but my working requires me to travel because as a contractor, so I'm suddenly saying, geez, I'm going to need some independent money for, you know, probably for lawyers, cause this isn't looking good. And so to restart my career, I agreed to, and it was something we, was going to, we were going to do anyway, but I thought I was going to do it as a, you know, while, even while we were married. I was going to go to Antarctica and lead a scientific expedition with a, with, a, with a boat, a survey, not an expedition, really, a fish survey. I was the scientist on board a, a vessel. And this was a survey that I had negotiated the origins of back when I was representing us in the Antarctic Convention. So I knew what the objectives were. I was the right scientist to lead it, whatever. But it meant I was going to be gone for a few months made me nervous because as we're negotiating how we're going to get divorced, I'm suddenly going to be absent. But, you know, I signed a separation agreement before we went away. If recording formally that we're separated on this date, these are our assets. 
Um, this is how much money we have, et cetera. This is our agreement for how we're going to resolve all this. And we said we were going to have our families fly to New York and sit down and negotiate a, a childcare schedule so that we wouldn't use lawyers and it wouldn't get acrimonious and everything was going to be fine, which sounds really lovely in principle. So I go away to Antarctica, come back. Um, so now we're in early 2015, come back in April. And the agreement was our families were going to negotiate a child care schedule up until the 30th of April. So nobody was going to file for divorce or invoke lawyers until the families had had a chance to, you know, do their thing, actually come up with an agreement so that we could do this in a not harmonious way. Well, the problem with being an honest, principled person is it makes you predictable. And so because we had signed a formal agreement that said we weren't going to file for divorce on uh, up until April uh, before the families had finished, which was April 30th. You know, I didn't do that, obviously. And so she filed for divorce on April 29th in, in the New York jurisdiction, you know, imposing New York law, saying that this is now in a New York court. Well, I had seen this coming. I mean, I'm a principled person that wasn't going to play that game, but I was suspecting that she was going to. So I had received written confirmation from Foreign Affairs that my children were under New Zealand jurisdiction because they're on New Zealand diplomatic passports and they're New Zealand citizens and were on a New Zealand diplomatic assignment. So they remain protected under New Zealand law, which is really important. The principles of New Zealand law um, are actually, if <laughs> if they would follow them, um, pretty good when it comes to, to care of children. The Care of Children Act is very explicit. There's five points that have to be considered in any um, issue about children. And four of them are all about continuity of care, relationships with family, attachment, cultural identity, now it's, it's the influence of sort of Maori culture embodied into New Zealand law, which is, which is far preferable to New York, where they don't even do shared custody. And effectively, especially in the Upper West Side, you know, whoever can afford the fancier apartment and the private school is clearly the more superior parent. And I knew that in New York, I would lose my kids. Um, there were, I mean, in fact, it would, it would be no contest because I couldn't afford to live in the jurisdiction. As I said, our, our, our rent was $15,000 a month paid for by the New Zealand taxpayer. As soon as I'm not living in that apartment, I can't live anywhere close to my children. Um, so I had been very nervous about the imposition of New Zealand of New York jurisdiction, but the New Zealand authorities of foreign affairs had provided me written assurance that nope, they're under New Zealand jurisdiction, everything's fine. So that was the first of now we're on the first of May. Go oh, so go ask a yes. question. Yeah. How were your kids through this? Well, they were young. You know, at that stage, we're talking 2015. So what are they? Four, six, and ten years old. Yeah, um, and you know, they were. It was, the whole thing was traumatic for them, but, you know, we had assured them that we were going to do this in a reasonable way and they were still going to see us both and it was going to be fine. And, and the grandparents were going to come and sort it all out in a rational way instead of allowing the emotional parents to start shouting at each other and make it bad. So they thought it was going to be okay. We had promised them it was. But when when she filed under New York, it was for exclusive full custody and I didn't even have visitation. I mean, it was like for everything. It was all, all the marbles at once. And... I thought I was protected because the New Zealand authorities had told me, foreign affairs had told me my kids are under New Zealand jurisdiction. We had delayed my grandfather's funeral so that we could have this negotiation. So I had to fly back to Dakota and, and attend a family funeral. Um, so I left the next day on the 1st of May, called foreign affairs and said, hey, look, I told you guys she was going to do this. You told me that she couldn't do it. Well, she has. What are you going to do about it? And I just got a very strange answer was like, oh, um, hold on, I need to talk to the lawyers. We'll get back to you. And I said to the woman, I said, wait a minute. 
I said, you told me that you, you already told me what the answer was. Why do you have to talk to the lawyers? But of course, she's not the lawyer and she has no authority to tell me anything. So now I'm nervous. Just take, um, just, just, just dwell on this for a minute for us because we're catching up with your experience. Yeah. You got an assurance from foreign affairs for whom your ex-wife is a very senior position in. Right? Yes. The most probably one of the most senior diplomatic posts you can get. You had an assurance for them that your kids would be under New Zealand law because A, they're New Zealand citizens on the face of it, and B, uh, they're on a diplomatic passport in service of New Zealand. You had that in writing. Yes. And you had that. Who who signed off on that? MFAT lawyers. Um, I mean, I could name the guy's name. Was yeah, no, I Pro- get it. So, Pro- like, it's serious, right? It's not yeah. like it's not well, like yeah. A, well, it wasn't hearsay. It's, it's not a flip email. No, and I and I asked for it formally in writing twice beforehand, and I even had asked them, okay, under what circumstances can this change? And they had said something like, oh, well, a waiver of immunity has never been offered before in these circumstances, Got which it. I thought was probably pretty good. Well, yeah. they were telling the truth. It had, a waiver of immunity had never been offered in those circumstances. But so, okay, told, no, no, I just wanted to be, clarify you've got that, yeah. and and yeah. as good as you could get it, yeah. I would have thought, yeah. But I'm calling them, I'm home for my grandpa's funeral, um, and I'm saying, Look, this has happened, and they're stalling me, and I'm getting nervous. And then they finally arrange, so it takes two days to actually arrange the, the meeting with the lawyers. And then when I finally get through to them, they tell me that in the two days that they stalled me. They granted her the waiver of immunity to allow her to proceed with our divorce and child custody under New York jurisdiction. And I was just absolutely floored. What's a a waiver of immunity? How does that work? Well, she's got diplomatic immunity, right? Which means she can't be subjected to the jurisdiction of New York. Even if she kills somebody, she can't be charged with murder. You know, I mean, diplomats have all these protections, which are supposed to protect them from what Cold War espionage or whatever. But it also opens the door to a tremendous amount of abuse. I mean, we saw that in the UK with that uh, car accident, didn't we? Where uh, was it an American diplomat killed someone? And um, and driving dangerously or something. Oh yeah, it happens all the time. Yes, so there was one in New Zealand where a foreign diplomat raped some woman, and he just right gets on a plane and runs home because that's the way the game is played, right? So, so, um, but this is this is odd, right? Well, they they had told me it never happened before, and this is a civil case. This is a civil case. Well, and this is just it, right? The concept of waiver of immunity is usually about a defense. Yeah, and 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 you're very you're very switched on. It's true. It ultimately, they they emphasized this because this is what they said allowed her to submit to the jurisdiction of the New York court. But I said, wait a minute, that's her. What about my children? Yeah, I said, oh, it's not about your children. It's exactly said, about on. your children. It's only about my children. And they're like, oh, oh, well, we can't intervene in a private matter. I said. You are intervening in a private matter. <laughs> and then she trips over herself and says, yeah, but again, she's just a messenger, right? So they couldn't get their story straight. But here's the evil thing about it. And I'll even use that word. Ten days later, when they finally put it in writing. Oh, the other thing I said is show me the waiver. It's like this thing, you say this thing exists, show it to me. Oh, we can't show it to you. It's like, so I'm supposed to accept that my children have been transferred to an international jurisdiction on the basis of, of what a phone conversation. This is insane. Right. Well, by the time I get, so then 
I fly back to New Zealand to challenge them. I say, look, I'm coming to New Zealand. This is illegal. Lawyer up because I'm coming. This is outrageous, right? And I shouldn't have been so confident, obviously, but I just assumed that as soon as you pull back the curtain on something this egregious, it gets fixed because how could something that outrageous actually stand? So at that point, I was just like, man, you guys have screwed up. I'm going to expose this. And you got, of you know, course, I'd be thinking exactly that. Well, you, I mean, you would think it. Yeah. I was thinking it was, I mean, I was thinking it was going to be a few weeks before suddenly someone says, whoa, we screwed that one up. But either way, I had to get to New Zealand to do it. And also I had to get to New Zealand to file paperwork so that I was getting divorced or having care of children proceedings filed in New Zealand to, to, to try to get that jurisdiction started, even though the New York one was already because started. Because you knew if it's heard in the New York jurisdiction, you've lost. Well, absolutely. I couldn't afford to you live there. You know that if yeah. it's heard in the New Zealand jurisdiction, the starting point is shared custody. Well, the starting point is at least that my children have rights. Yeah. I mean, here's 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 the real the real kicker. There's only two countries in the entire world that have not signed the United Nations declarations on the rights of the child. The United States and South Sudan. <laughs> so it's like the only, almost the only place they could have have abandoned the children to a foreign jurisdiction where they have no rights. And the UN Declaration on the Rights of the Child, it's very cl closely mirrored by the Care of Children Act in the United in, in New Zealand. It's not a coincidence. They just mirrored the international agreement in domestic law. And it says, you know, the primary consideration in all you know decisions is the you know, the, the, the rights of the, or the, the best interests of the child. New York won't even are, say that. These are Kiwi kids. These are of course. Kiwi kids. They didn't even have U.S. passports. We never lived anywhere else except in the service of the New Zealand government. So, I mean, there was no question. This is weird. But, well, this it was weird. weird. And then when I got and I would be like you. I would be like you. I'd expect to fly back to Wellington and not even have to do anything, just explain the situation say, oh my god you're right and it'd be fixed and that's what i expected right but when i got there i first first i found out that when i finally saw the waiver of immunity it was dated the 12th of may so they that had lied to me on the fifth fourth and fifth of may when they said that they'd already agreed they'd already done it or else they did it oh once and had to God. do it over again. So when they said it existed and they said, oh, sorry, it's too late. We've already done it. There's nothing you can do about it anyway. They were lying. But it is true. Once it's done, it's irreversible. That's international law because you don't, the New Zealand government doesn't have the power to compel the New York government to hand it back. So I see. it of really course. was true of that course. once it was done, it couldn't be undone, even if the prime minister himself had said, whoa, sorry, we screwed up. No, right? So they committed this irreversible action with no precedent. But presumably, then, presumably, just thinking this through, it's such a big deal to waive immunity that it has to be a big fish to waive it. There has, correct. And, and in fact, there'd have to be surely a process that gets followed. Well, no, this is this is a logically you would think there has to be a process. And this is the fallacy in all government processes. When you find out you get to a certain level, there are no processes and there are no rules. So these people don't follow rules. Now, that sounds anyway, you'll see. Yeah. Ultimately, there are no rules when you get high enough. Well, it had to be a minister. Thing. 
but yes, according to the rules, it's called a prerogative power of the crown. So, you know, big shot New Zealand law um, professor Andrew Geddes um, provided this advice, you know, secondhand, didn't want to be implicated probably. But um, but yeah, prerogative power of the crown, which means only the minister can do it unless there's an express delegation. Yeah. Well, that was Minister McCulley and he didn't do it. So the guy that did do it, did it illegally without the knowledge of the minister. Now, I don't know when the minister did find out. Um, that would be an interesting question if anybody were to ever investigate this. But either way, it's been verified that at the time it was done, it was done by somebody without the authority to do it. But it was still irreversible. Of course. Which is so it ironic. was done unlawfully under New Zealand. And but once we, it's gone, you can't wrest yes. it back from New York because New because, York has, it doesn't have New to York, say. New York's taken it in good faith from right. the New Zealand government. Right. And the person uh, who signed an unlawful um, waiver or immunity is in deep, deep doo theoretically, because this is a big deal to sign an immunity that's never been done before and involving three kids. But, of course, no. Because it's one of you those get high enough. There's no such thing as deep doo doo either. That's right. Because and in <laughs> fact, the bigger the doo doo, the more it has to be covered up. And right. I, I got to tell you a little sidebar. I remember being told, I remember to- being told this by a very senior civil servant when I was a very young and callow MP, and they said, you know, we can't have this. And I said, yes, but it's true. You know, terrible situation, terrible thing like this. And they said, no, we can't have this. Of course it's true, but if people got to know about it, they'd lose faith in the system. Correct. And, and so when you get this is one of the ultimate lessons for us normal citizens is to recognize, you know, you, you would logically you would think the worse it is, you know, the less chance that it can keep going. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, it's the, opposite. the worse it is, everybody just closed ranks. Everybody circle, lied to protect circle this the, guy. Circle the wagons. Circle the wagons. And the ultimate circling of the wagons, well, I mean, I don't know, the story is long, but two weeks later, I got finally the first legal from the lawyers affirmation of what they had done. And they had done their homework and recognized that what they'd done was completely indefensible, illegal, unless they could claim an emergency. So they said this was done on an emergency basis to protect my children from me. Because she had said that I was a threat to the safety of my children because I was going to kidnap them from New York. Now, they had never mentioned that for the two weeks that I had been talking to them beforehand. But this is the first thing I get in writing. So, But ultimately, I mean, it's, it's, it's outrageous and it's shocking and it's offensive. But it was also laughable because the time frame didn't work. They didn't even find out that she had filed until the 2nd of May. Um, they, they didn't even tell her she needed a waiver until the 4th of May. They didn't grant them a waiver until the 12th of May. They knew on the 1st of May that I had already left New York. And that I, and I and then on the 4th and 5th, I told them, I'm coming to New Zealand to challenge you legally. So they can't, they can't claim to actually believe it. And when confronted with the impossibility of the time frame, they just kind of laughed in my face and said, hire a lawyer. So I did. But... I think that the other thing that's hard to believe if you haven't actually lived this is that the only explanation is that normal cases, lawyers are willing to represent their clients because the normal cases don't threaten anybody. 
But if you have a case that actually threatens the legal system itself, that threatens the powerful big fish at the top of the of the uh, of, of the system, you don't represent your client because look who you're alienating, look who you're exposing, look who you're making enemies of. So my lawyer completely sold me out, took every penny I had, and then dropped me less than a week before the hearing. I had to buy a plane ticket and fly back to New Zealand to represent myself, scared out of my mind because I'd spent all my money. And then the lawyer said, I'm not showing up to court. So in retrospect, I'm thankful because she would have sold me out in court the same as she sold me out beforehand. It was actually better for me to be there representing myself. But it was the most surreal experience that I went to another law firm trying to challenge MFAC because this was just the family court that I was showing up in where I was about to lose custody of my kids. And so I needed to like contest the New York jurisdiction. But to, con- but to actually challenge MFAT's action, the law firm I went to, they just said, no, we can't help you. Well, in retrospect, it's obvious what they did was so illegal that anybody could help me if they wanted to. But the guy who almost certainly signed the waiver was a partner at that law firm. Well, I didn't know that at the time because I didn't know who had done it. Um, but oh, it's such an incestuous so, so partner, I think, actually. Yeah, former partner now at MFAT. Yeah. Isn't it disgusting? Well, I mean, I'm and I contacted just, law professors, I I'm contacted lawyers, it's and, you know, the one guy who who I thought would be the well-placed to, to advise me on this, oh, sorry, I can't, conflict of interest, my wife works for MFAT. You know, they all know each other, and ultimately, nobody would even talk to me. At one point, and this is much later, but it's outrageous, I call I called the State Services Commission because people told me, you know, when I had, they were, I mean, MFAT were just doubling down and doubling down. And they granted her a second waiver of immunity when it was pointed out to them that the first one was unenforced. Well, the, the first one didn't, didn't allow enforcement. So here, okay, it's a bit of a long divergence, but it's, it's incredible and it's worth hearing. So the waiver of immunity allowed her to impose the New York court upon me, but any judgment they reached would be unenforceable because she still had her immunity. It would require a second waiver of immunity after the court found against her to make it enforceable. So basically they were imposing on me a condition where we go to court in New York. I can't afford it, of course, but we go to court in New York. If by some crazy um, you know, stroke of luck, I actually win, she just picks up her diplomatic passport and says, waves her get out of court free card and says, no, nah, we'll just start over again in New Zealand because you don't have any power over me. And so this ridiculous catch-22 where she can wield the court but still say immune from its judgment, that stayed in place for six or eight months. And I pointed this out to MFAT. And they said, I was about to hire a lawyer. <laughs> what country would I hire one in? Um, when finally the New York for, judge... Can I just interrupt there for a minute, yeah, Ben? Yeah. You've reminded me of something that used to happen in politics, and I'd forgotten all about this. And I'd have someone come to me with a heart-wrenching story of abuse like yours, might be the IRD, it might be, you know, a government department. And I'd say, oh, this seems genuine. And I'd make calls, right, because I knew everyone, right? And then I'd get a call from a minister or a senior civil servant 
and they're saying, oh, Rodney, um, we've just got these questions about Dr. Ben Sharp. He's, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just worried about it because he's been to say, oh, yes, no, no. Well, um, <clears throat> there's more to the story. Um, there are big, big issues here, big, big problems with Dr. Sharp. And um, our advice is you just, you know, best stay Back off. Well, stay well away. Yes. And you'd say something like, oh, well, oh, no, we can't go into it, but it's just a friendly word. <laughs> and you know, I was so naive that when that first happened, I believed them. Yeah. Yeah, it's because a, yeah. I, 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 I couldn't imagine a minister or a senior civil servant. And I just assumed that there was something there. The guy was a you know a child rapist and they didn't want me to have egg on my face, right? Right. Yeah. And then I realized on that same case, that's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> but they don't even have to tell you what it is. Exactly. You know I mean? Well, because they say, oh, well, it, it, it involves the privacy of children. That's that's the get yeah. out of accountability free card for anything. And they can and, say that to a law firm. Yeah. Right. And uh, and Absolutely. at the and at the time, right, you're an MP or you're a law firm, and you're not well disposed to get into the case because it's thorny and difficult and God, it's complicated, and you're trying to get your head around it. And they give you a nice way to slide out of it. Yeah. Right. And so they, it is actually gossip or rumor or what's the word? Blacklisting? Innuendo. Innuendo. It's a, a subtle innuendo. And oh, yeah, no, you don't want to get just back off of this one. This one's messy. Yeah. Yes, that's it. Sorry. I, and I think, this, but no, no, that, that's actually a very useful, um, it, it's a very useful intervention because that's exactly what I experienced with every single person I would approach. It's like sort of, Ground level foot soldiers in the New, in the New Zealand public service are good people, right? Yes. And the first time you talk to somebody, they're like, "Oh my god, yeah, that's really egregious." Oh my god, can they do that? That always made me laugh, right? They're the civil yeah. servant who's supposed to be telling me what they can yeah. and can't do, and they would always act shocked and say, "Can they do that?" And I was like, "Christ, I thought you were supposed to tell me that they can or can't, right?" But anyway, they would act shocked. They'd be very empathetic, and they'd say, "Yeah, that's really serious." And then it dies. Well, and then yeah, the next time you talk to them, it's like, um. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. You know, you need to talk to so-and-so click. And it's chilling. You feel like you're in one of these sort of futuristic dystopian yeah. sci-fi films where, you know, like enemy of the state where they, you know, where they're like turning off your access to all public access to things. It's funny. It's funny. Just It feels surreal. Carry on. Boy. I was about to tell you about the State Services Commission lawyer hanging up on me because this was a yep. chilling moment, right? Tell me. I was told that the State Services Commission was where you could go because they're because the, uh, the oversight yeah. of every they're supposed to be the watchdog of of yeah. all the CEOs. If the CEO, if you've gone all the way to the CEO, well, I'm, I thought by going all the way to the CEO, I'd get fixed. And I put everything in writing, very detailed, you know, very rational, very evidence based. And I showed, look, the timeline is in, is, is impossible, whatever. But but no, MFAT, they were stonewalling me completely. They told the woman who. Was whose job it was to deal with me as a diplomatic spouse or a diplomatic ex-spouse, but with an interest in the children. They told her she's not allowed to talk to me. I said, you're the only one who I am allowed to talk to. I'm sorry, Dr. Sharp Click. Um, and it, 
so in a moment of desperation, I called this, well, it wasn't desperation, but I was feeling really desperate, but I also thought it was a rational thing to do. People told me it was the thing to do, call the State Services Commission. And I couldn't get through to the guy and left messages. Eventually, I got frustrated enough. I left a detailed message saying, look, this is really important. You know, it's about my children, foreign affairs, retained in an overseas jurisdiction. It's a hate convention violation, blah, 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 blah. When I finally get through to him, without even hearing very many of the details, he cuts me off. He says, oh, no. Your children are under New York jurisdiction. I can't help you. And I said, wait a minute. I didn't mention New York. And then I said, what's your boss's name and what's your email address? And he hung up the phone. So based on the voice message I'd left him, he clearly dug around enough to find out from somebody. And his instructions were, try to put him off. If you can't put him off, for God's sake, don't talk to him. Yeah. And that's the watchdog organization. That's the State Services Commission. Meanwhile, I mean, I'm spending all my money. I'm, I'm having to hold the New York um, jurisdiction at bay. Because if the New York judge steps in and accepts jurisdiction now that it's disputed, it's game over. New Zealand will never get it back. She's saying openly in sworn affidavits that the children and her have no actual connection to New Zealand. And if she... You know, the reason why it should stay in New York is because they have no intention of ever coming back. She'll probably go to Geneva or Africa next. So she's not hiding the fact that she's using this as a pretense to take the children to a place where I could never follow and never see them again. And I show this to foreign affairs and they still say not our problem. Which is insane, right? Um, meanwhile, at the same time, she's also said that because this is now under New York jurisdiction, we're not actually separated. So she can claim all of my income from the time that I was in, in, in Antarctica as her own. And I pointed this out to the family court judge. I said, isn't it insane that you can be legally separated and, you know, move on with your life and get a new job and find a new girlfriend and have a new life, you know, under New Zealand law, and then have somebody unseparate you and claim that you're still married in order to claim your income? I said, what about this legal separation agreement? It's recognized under New Zealand law. And the New Zealand judge just looked at me and said, yeah, tell the New York judge that. I was like, but it's not recognized under New York law. And he's like, I don't know what to do. Not my problem. And again, I showed this to foreign affairs. I was like, your overseas posted diplomat is wielding a foreign jurisdiction, not just to manipulate child custody, but also to say we're not even divorced or not, sorry, not even separated. But this is, of course, the legal mismatch, right? In New Zealand, separation and care of children and property are all separate issues. In New York, it's all one thing. It's called divorce. And so your relationship status and your property and your children all have to be resolved together. And so she was wielding that to say that under New York law, we're not divorced until it's all resolved. Therefore, she can claim my money too, um, which was not my highest priority by any means, but it just highlighted the absurdity of the entire thing. And the fact that foreign affairs felt they had no responsibility to force their own employee to accept that she was under New Zealand law. And the core of the problem legally is in fact granting of immunity to your ex-wife. Well, and not only that, even more egregious, I feel, which I didn't even realize at the time, jurisdiction is actually imparted by the passport, the, diplomat, the, the diplomatic visa and the passport. They retrieved, they canceled my children's visas 
and retrieved their passports while they were already overseas. They entered the United States on these passports and the MFET takes them back and leaves them with no passports. They didn't have U.S. passports either. So now they're in the United States with no passports at all. It's impossible. Well, that's what everybody said. Can they do that? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is they can do anything. They can do anything. Because if powerful enough people are implicated, everybody circles the wagons. The guy who did this, um, and, and, you know, prove me wrong. I would love to think, I would love to have somebody prove me wrong, but all the evidence would say, and all the logic would say, MFET tried to deny it for five years, but then my ex got so arrogant, she admitted it in, a, in an affidavit. The guy that did it was the head of the New York mission to the United Nations. One of the most senior diplomats in foreign affairs, the same guy that got also in a scandal because they bought him a $16 million apartment when he went to New York. It's not good enough to just rent an apartment for this guy. We're going to use $16 million of New Zealand taxpayer money to buy him his ultimate bachelor pad so he can swan around in New York at taxpayer expense. Same dude. This is the level of entitlement that we're talking about, the the the, the, the level but, of impunity well, from just, any oversight. Just adds to it, right? So let me just get this right. Because we're not funny enough. We're not funny enough talking about the rights and wrongs of your separation divorce. We're not talking about um, who should have custody in all of this. No. What we're talking about is the proper forum for this to be resolved. That's all we're talking about. Yes. So um, we don't have to get into it about who's the best person to be caring for your children, you or your wife, or whether it should be 50-50 or whatever. None of this is in this debate. This entire debate is about where it should be heard. In order to get, and of course, the answer is significantly affected by where it is heard for reasons you've well explained. In order to get it heard where your wife is totally advantaged and you're totally disadvantaged, so much so that it's not even a contest, MFAT had to waive immunity for your wife. Now, and then retrieve the passports. Yes, now I'll come to that. Yeah. So they had to waive immunity. In doing so, they did it unlawfully. They told you they'd done it when they hadn't done it, and then they did it. And you told me that it's the only time immunity's been waived by the New Zealand government? For this purpose, yes. In a, in oh, a, in no, a, just for this purpose, for a divorce, you mean? What yeah, about? I mean... I'm sure there's been times where people got traffic tickets and or or were you know involved in some misdemeanor type crime and got they waived immunity so that they could go to court for it. I mean, I'm, I don't think it's yeah, oh, yeah, it's not it's unheard. The first time that New Zealand's done it for a family court purpose. Yeah, got it. Yeah, so it's a big deal, and they did it incorrectly after the fact, right? And it's the biggest decision in your children's lives that MFAT took. Well, yeah, for sure. For and sure. they just, the only way they could make it legal was by manufacturing an allegation that I was a threat to their safety. Which because we could prove. the emergency basis of a threat to safety, it was, they were guilty as sin. 
Yes. And yeah. then the timeline proves that fatuous. Of course. Then of course. they came along without your permission and took your children's passports off them. Yeah, they canceled the visas, retrieved the passports. How, now tell me, first of all, why did they need to do that? Because the jurisdiction is is imparted by the passport, by the diplomatic visa. Um, so the passport, the passport wasn't the problem. They had immunity on their passport. Well, no, they were traveling on a New Zealand passport. A diplom a New Zealand diplomatic passport imparts the idea that you are still a New Zealand citizen wherever. Of you course, are. of and course, and of course, right. under New Zealand law, they have rights. Right. Right. Under New Zealand law, they have rights. Under New York law, and they so have while 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 the New Zealand government had had the jurisdiction for your divorce and settlement to your to New York because they pulled diplomatic immunity on your wife, under the custody arrangements, I'm getting to this. I'm sorry, I'm a bit slow, Ben. Mm -hmm. Under the custody arrangements, your children were still under New Zealand jurisdiction. Legally, yes. Yes, but. In reality, no. It was it, well. In reality, it was being disputed because the New York court had already passed an order saying that they could not leave New, New York. So okay. that that order was in place. So now it's a it's a jurisdictional struggle, and just to finalize and, it, they took the passport. Right, right, and then and so now I'm in I'm in both courts. You know, paying a New York lawyer to lawyer to hold that at bay long enough for New Zealand to hear the case, which takes time, obviously. Um, they grant her a second waiver of immunity after the legal arguments have already been filed in New Zealand, because this loophole about the unenforceability of it was um, was meant that the New York judge said, "Well, I won't have anybody in my courtroom who's not subject to enforcement." And they said, "Oh, okay. Well, we'll give her another waiver then." So they, even if they were to forget that. You know, the 10th of May is later than the 1st of May and pretend that they actually acted under urgency the first time. The second one wasn't granted till December. So they certainly can't pretend they acted under urgency then. And and I'd already laid out the entire thing to the chief executive officer of MFAD and to all of them and also to Minister Key and Minister Finlayson. Um, sorry, Minister Key, who was acting foreign affairs minister at the time, and then he passed it to Minister Finlayson. So now ministers, senior level ministers also know the entire situation and they still grant her the second waiver of immunity. Then the family court judge in New Zealand, who I am forever indebted to, even though I'll never see him again, passes an actually a fair and very well argument judgment saying, no, these are New Zealand children. This belongs under New Zealand's jurisdiction. And also sends a separate note saying, and by the way, stop issuing new waivers of immunity that keep messing with the jurisdiction of my court. Basically telling MFAT you're not allowed to keep changing the goalposts after the legal arguments are already filed. Wow. Good MFAT on wrote you. back to the family court judge and said, no, you're wrong. You can't make this judgment. And Sorry, you can't who, who, who wrote back? MFAT lawyers. At the same time as they're telling me we can't get involved in a private matter, they're writing to the judge telling them he's wrong, telling him he's wrong. <laughs> I mean, total surreal, right? That's contempt. That's and surely. Of course. Well, yeah. I mean, they're actively telling a New Zealand family court judge that his judgment is wrong. Not in and court, then, but through a private letter. Yeah, well, from a foreign affairs lawyer? Yeah. I don't. I mean, what status does it have? But it must have had some status because eventually that family court judge, somebody slapped him down. He issued a, uh, he issued a very courageous judgment, in my opinion. 
And two months later, he was unwilling to enforce it. And I went back and I said, you've already said my kids are under New Zealand jurisdiction. I was like, if you won't bring them back physically, you know, at least, well, first I said, tell the New York judge. So the New York judge will cancel, cancel her order because now, now the two orders are in conflict. That's not our responsibility. That's foreign affairs' responsibility. Well, obviously, foreign affairs isn't going to do it. Um, meanwhile, the only way she keeps the New York proceedings alive was by using a loophole about child support because under New York law, you can use a something called a bifurcated divorce, but only in extraordinary circumstances. So care of children is retained in New Zealand, but she's still going to wield child support in New York, of course, where the where the bills are so high that I'm expected to pay $100,000 a year or some crazy thing. But um, in order to do that, she had to make up some other allegations against the extraordinary circumstances. But in so doing, she violated the Child Support Act. And because in the Child Support Act, the New Zealand diplomats is explicit. New Zealand diplomats remain under New Zealand jurisdiction. And the family court judge had cited that paragraph in his judgment. So they, she can't pretend that she didn't know. In fact, can't pretend they didn't know. But they allowed her to break the New Zealand law, the, the, the Child Support Act, in order to manipulate the New, the, the New York judge into retaining jurisdiction for a piece of it long enough for her to prepare an appeal. So now I'm preparing for an appeal in the high court. No New Zealand lawyer is going to touch this. My lawyer just absolutely refused. So I'm going to a high court appeal on my own. Terrifying. Um, but ultimately, I think I just kind of blackmailed or bluffed bluff them down. It wasn't a bluff. It was true. But I just said, look, if this goes to the high court, you know, the only way to understand this is to pull back the curtain on everything, find out who granted this waiver and why. By that time, the guy that did it was himself a high court judge. He had left the MFAT post in New York and been appointed to the high court by Finlayson. So now I've got a high court judge was the guy who was implicated in this, in, in this whole abuse of power. You know, I, you can ask him what his motivations were. It's a movie, um, right? It's a movie. Well, nobody would believe it. It's a sick movie. Yeah. But um, so, so they, they, they canceled the appeal at the last moment. I show up. And then my ex's lawyer says, oh, no, sorry, judge, we changed our mind, no appeal. And we're like, wait, what? And the judge is like, did you know about this? I said, no. And the judge is like, well, it's good for you, I guess. I said, yeah, I guess, okay. But then I go back to the regular family court judge, and he still won't enforce the order. Nobody will actually tell New York, you can't retain our, these children overseas. So now it's, a Hague, it's what's called a Hague Convention, a wrongful retention under the Hague Convention. If your children are very clearly under New Zealand jurisdiction, but they're retained overseas yes, illegally by another order, that's a Hague Convention retention. Which so the America first part was the attempted Hague Convention removal. The attempted Hague Convention removal failed, but then it became a retention because physically the children were still already over there. And so the government themselves and this high court judge are now implicated, guilty of a hate convention retention with, you know, keeping my children in a foreign jurisdiction and nobody will do anything. And I'm broke. I was, I was sleeping on friends' couches. I didn't have my normal job. I couldn't tell my employers which continent I was going to be on. I kept thinking I was going to get my kids back, but maybe in, in the United States. So I couldn't tell them which continent I'm going to be on. I might have to fly back to New York to, to, to appear in court, et cetera. So I, I was completely, I mean, I was this close to losing my, my kids and my employment and my house. And I was, you know, all my credit cards were maxed out. I was so far in debt, you couldn't imagine. And out of pure desperation, 
again, I mean, the whole I guess the whole thing felt desperate the whole time, but somebody said, well, just go to your MP. So I did. And it was Grant Robertson. And to his credit, and I don't know why, but he actually helped me. Right. And and he started sending Minister Macaulay written parliamentary questions. And I guess written parliamentary questions, if you lie, it's like lying under oath. So it gets their attention when you start what asking year, questions. What year was this? Early 2016. This would have been about okay. April, April 2016. And this was after the family court judges had told me straight up. I mean, I had said, look, my children are in New Zealand jurisdiction. They're entitled to a lawyer. Appoint the lawyer. And I had New Zealand, uh, a family court judge say, I'm not going to do that because she's going to appeal it anyway. Well, anticipation of an appeal does not forestall execution of a judgment. That is a legal principle. Judge didn't care. What am I going to do? And I think one of the things that you realize is that in the family court, and I'll, and I'll take a slight divergence and maybe they make this more relevant to people who don't have my crazy history and all this, you know, this, this, this abuse of power, but just the normal proceedings of the family court. As long as you are paying a lawyer, they're getting something from you. The system is getting something from you. And so that can continue. As soon as you're showing up representing yourself, the idea is this guy's got nothing left to contribute. So we don't have to listen to him. He's powerless. So you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, if you're challenging powerful people. If you have a lawyer, the lawyer won't challenge them. If you don't have a lawyer, the judge is free to ignore the law because he knows you're powerless. It's a clap. And, I, and I'm not really sure which is worse. Like I've, do, I've done it both ways and ultimately you lose both ways um, because they're covering up for something bigger. Now, in a normal family court case, they're not covering up for something bigger. Maybe you're even allowed to win when you're representing yourself. But except for Judge Walsh's original judgment, which I have you know, total respect for and respect for him for having the courage to do it, I, every judge since then, as soon as they see you representing yourself, I, I swear half the time they probably don't even read it. Um, so, yeah, I had judges say to me directly, oh, another one. This is great. My ex's lawyer had actually unfiled court documents. She had actually submitted to the jurisdiction originally by submitting a defense. And legally, when you submit a defense, you submit to the jurisdiction. Then she wrote to the, 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 the case officer, said, oh, sorry, I forgot to attach some attachments. Can I have my document back? What well, was a lie? There were no attachments. It was a pretense to get the document back. And then she files a completely different do document, which is um, a contest of jurisdiction. So I showed this to the judge. I said, are you allowed to unfile? a document that's already filed in the family court. Isn't that corruption? Is, the, is, is, is my case officer allowed to unfile something that's been filed? And he said, I will not tolerate you casting aspersions about the other lawyer. And I said, I'm not casting aspersions. It's true. He said, you don't talk about that. I said, turn the page. Exhibit B. It's right in front of your face. He wouldn't turn the page. So it was irrefutable. The, the evidence was right there, but he wouldn't look at it because I'm powerless. And I'm not allowed to challenge her. And this has been my exper experience over and over in the family court. Like the lawyer for child has violated their rights and abused their rights. I mean, so many different ways. And I won't get into the details about the children's stuff because I'm, I'm already going to be accused of, you know, oh, my God, what a horrible father. He's violating the privacy of his children by talking about this publicly. So I don't want to get into the details of the things that actually involve them personally. but. 
the the lawyer for child is supposed to represent them over and over again. I could find time, you know, she would represent the opposite of what she had said to them or not talk to them at all or collude with it. I mean, more recently colluding with the ministry of children to make sure that they weren't represented by anybody at a time when she hadn't been in contact with them for more than a year. She hadn't spoken to them in a year and a half under ministry for children processes. They're entitled to an adult representative when they're being, you know, talked to by anybody, especially about something as egregious as what happened recently. And, uh, and the lawyer for child said, Oh, they don't need a representative. I'm the representative. And an OT says, Oh, okay. And so then they don't get one and they're completely isolated and alone through the entire process. And I can prove that too, but I can prove all of it. But if you're powerless, nobody cares. Nobody will listen. Anyway, I'm going out of sequence here. Maybe no, we'll have not. to. Edit you're not, can I just say, Ben? Yeah. And it's not an easy thing to say, but you're a very beautiful man. <laughs> yeah. oh, thanks, yeah. man. I, look, you, know, I, you, you, you are everything that I would aspire to be. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I've got a lot of problems, too, and I've made a lot of mistakes. But And you're a but, very, very wonderful, you must be a wonderful dad. And I, I would like to think that confronted with your situation, I could do what you have done, but I know I couldn't mm. because I wouldn't, I know, I know that system and I know I'm not strong enough. That would break me. Well, what's, what's remarkable is we've only gotten through like what, 18 months of my life, not even 18. It took me 18 to get the kids back. And I will give credit to Grant Robertson for cornering Minister McCulley. Tell us about and after that. nothing else worked, the threat of being of exposure of this scandal, Minister McCulley was willing to fire them all, apparently. And suddenly they're looking for someone to throw under the bus and they're desperate to negotiate with me. Like they had been, they'd stonewalled me, been refused, refused to even talk to me for, a, for almost a year. And then How all of a wonderful. sudden they want to negotiate. Oh, but it wasn't. It was sick because they're, you know, they're they're feigning all of this false concern and oh, just be reassured that your children's welfare was foremost in our minds at all the time. You know, there's a there's a court case called Tavita versus Ministry of Education that establishes the precedent that in any of these government decisions, the welfare of the children has to be the foremost consideration and the burden of proof is on the government. They have to prove that they considered my children's rights. I OIA'd everything. My children's name wasn't mentioned once. They didn't even talk about what this meant for my kids. All my ex wanted to know is when could she get her diplomatic immunity back? So after a year and a bit, and I'm actually in the room with these people, I didn't feel wonderful. I, it was kind of, I, I mean, I, I had no respect for them, of course. But ultimately, I was just tired. You know, I was broke. I was desperate. I hadn't seen my kids. They let her disconnect the landline phone in the New York apartment. So I couldn't even call them anymore. Outrageous, right? So, and, you know, she was telling them all kinds of ungodly lies about me, I suppose. Well, I'm not, I suppose. I know. Um, so ultimately, they negotiate. And because Macaulay gives him an ultimatum, you know, shut this guy up, make, you know, cover this up. And I signed a non-disclosure agreement, which I'm violating now by talking to you. And they paid my legal bills, but only my actual 
receded expenses, nothing for the devastation of my income or my credit score. I still can't get a loan. My God, you know, I was just destroyed my life. And, and I, you know, my, my income in that year was like 60 some thousand dollars. Hers was almost 300,000. Um, but they, I, I negotiated a letter where they had to apologize for all these itemized things. Oh, the other thing that they had done, even more egregious, maybe, MFET has a policy, a, tra- a reunion travel policy, where children that are separated as a consequence of a diplomatic post have subsidized travel to be reunited with the other parent four times a year. And it's not because they're nice people. It's because they recognize that under the Care of Children Act, they can't be you know, responsible for disrupting a child's relationship with a parent because a child's relationship with a parent is a legal right. So that's why this policy exists. I had it in writing that I'm entitled to this policy. The moment we're separated, I pointed out that actually we're already separated. She just apparently didn't tell you guys, oh, oh, sorry. Um, And so, yeah, I'm supposed to be able to have, you know, my kids are going to see me four times a year until this is all resolved. And then they reversed position and said, well, it's only at her discretion. So she basically said, no, I don't want to let him use subsidized travel. You know, just knowing that every dollar I spent on a plane ticket is a dollar I can't spend on a lawyer. And MFAT knew this was illegal, but they let her do it because breaking me financially was probably was actually part of the agenda. If I'm if I'm too broke to fight them, then I can't fight them. And then later, when Andrea Vance broke the story, like a whole year later, I found out they were paying her legal bills. What? Yeah. Yeah, the, the New Zealand government paid her legal bills in New York at the same time as they were telling me we can't get involved in a private matter. What? Yeah, I know, right? Watch the Intervance story. 70, I think it was 70-some thousand dollars. I didn't learn that until I watched TV One. So I had made reference to the original abuse of power, you know, seven, eight years ago, about six years ago, actually briefly made it above the public radar when Andrea Vance from TV One did a story on it. And then they whitewashed the whole story and MFAT took an injunction and sued the law professor that she interviewed, and the whole thing turned into kind of a very shallow whitewash type story. Nonetheless, the story existed. I was trying to refer to this story in my criminal court defense and searching for it and find it. It's really strange. I was in New Zealand, and I'm looking using Google, as you do when you try to find a story. Well, long story short, you can, tech, tech, you can check this home, the home audience. If you're inside New Zealand and you use the, here's your Google search, you know, TV one, yep. Andrea Vance in quotes. Hang on. Oh, you're at your computer. Oh, this will be great. And you're in New Zealand, right? Yeah. Andrea Vance. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Andrea Vance put that in quotes. And then the title of the article, M fat steak costs taxpayers and put all M-fat, of that in quotes. So it's just M-fat, M-fat, hang on, I'll put the quotes in. M fat mistake costs taxpayers. In fact, mistake costs taxpayers. Yeah, end quote. Yeah, and Google okay. that. And that should be enough. Those three, there's you've got three terms there for Google search. And can you find can you find the article? No, it says no results found for TV One Andrea Vance. In fact, mistakes cost taxpayers. Okay, that's exist. really interesting. Now copy and paste that exact same search. Okay. Yeah, and instead, so you can just copy and paste the whole search window. So you've got all three terms again. Now go to yandex.com. Yandex.com. Is that Y A N D E X? D E X. Yeah. .com. Yeah. And I've got a new search engine, and I'll paste that and I'll search it. 
Oh, my God. Popped up. In fact, there it, you go. It popped up. Um, two stories, one news and tvnz.co. I've linked onto them. Oh, that's funny. One of them is a 404. Uh, and the other one's live. Yeah, it's still there. The story's here. I found it. Yeah, the story is there. But you can't find it in New Zealand using an English language search engine. If you use DuckDuckGo or Google or Yahoo, uh, it's 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 blocked. It's it's it somehow disappears. And yet, if you search for the same story from outside of New Zealand, of course, it's the first hit because you've got the exact author and the exact title. And Yandex is a Russian search engine. It's a Russian website. So what did we just learn? We learned that if you want to find stories that are inconvenient for somebody powerful in New Zealand, you have to use a Russian search engine. Oh, now, my like, God. I'm not so naive as to think that governments don't do this. We all know that China does it, right? Most English-speaking people probably think it's only the Chinese, but I know better. We know better. But the idea that my ex-wife's shenanigans and MFAT's shenanigans to cover, to cover for her are important enough to warrant Google suppression, internet censorship, like, that is, that, who I mean, decided that this story was worth suppressing? And, I mean, you'd think it would be something, uh, you know, it would be like who shot, you know, JFK or how they faked the moon well, endings. I exactly. Mean, <laughs> this is, so which government, which, which New Zealand government department is responsible for deciding which stories we're going to censor? And how did this one make the cut? I mean, maybe I should be flattered, you know, but... um. Yeah. You know, that my little life is actually enough of somebody in secret intelligence service censoring the internet. But it's kind of chilling. Isn't that peculiar? Isn't that that the most peculiar thing? Well, now I'm paranoid on your behalf. But So um, so did you go to Andrea Vance or did she get on the story through Robertson's questions? I think she got onto it through Robertson's questions and Grant let me know that she was asking around. And then subsequently I got something formally because under the, I think under the privacy act, if someone's yes. doing a story about you, they ha- you have to be notified. Yes. So I found out through the privacy act and through Robertson. And my only interaction with her was to tell her, look, I don't want my kids named. I don't want any names used. And that was all. So I think so she had sources. Me, the taxpayer, right. Yeah. Are supporting your ex-wife in the UN in a fifteen thousand a month apartment plus drinks and travel. Your kids to a fifty thousand dollar each a year school. Yeah, paying her three hundred odd k for hanging out with. That that wasn't her base salary, but yeah, with all the additional allowances, yeah. et cetera. Yes, yeah. We've heard of all the legal shenanigans that they did. MFAT and MFAT are using my taxpayer dollars to fight you in court. Yeah, I think the idea was if you keep me tied me up there, I can't. I have less resources to fight them here. Here being where you are in New Zealand, um, or, or maybe I don't know. Maybe it was pure vindictiveness. Maybe she was just getting another favor from the same boss. I don't know, but yeah, I, I, they they did. They paid her legal bills. Um. But ultimately, they forced her to leave the post early, and so the kids all come back to New Zealand. Um, Now, I had thought that I would get the kids here in in South Dakota where we had a home because 
I was broke and homeless. Um, and we had spent every summer here before Northern hemisphere summer. And I had said, okay, well, I will go back, let them come and spend the summer with me, which is what our, our living arrangement had always been while we were in the United States. And then we come back after the summer, you know, once I've got my feet on the ground, ironically, she said, Oh judge, you can't let him do that. He'll kidnap the children. <laughs> it's just like, Oh my God. But this is, of course, you're probably familiar. Do you know, do you know this, um, Oh, that guy got wrote, Saul Alinsky wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. This is like, it's how to be a, I don't know, whatever. I don't know the, the details of it, but it's basically what do you do when you're trying to destroy systems? And one of the rules is you just always accuse your opponent of whatever oh. you yourself are guilty of, no matter whether it's true or not. And don't bother with evidence. You just I accuse, did. accuse, accuse. And it works. Like it's the terrifying thing is that in, in the family court, I, I got to the point where I could always know what she's doing because it's what she's accusing me of. And it, but it works because if you're explaining, you're losing. You know, it takes longer to tell the truth, to refute a lie than it takes to tell a lie. So if somebody spends two minutes telling lies and you spend 10 minutes defending yourself, what the judge sees is this guy is being really defensive for 10 minutes. Well, the truth must be somewhere in the middle and they split the difference. Well, halfway between the truth and a really outrageous lie is still a pretty big lie. And you just get destroyed that way. But but it worked. So the, it, I was because I was a threat to kidnapping the kids. You know, they they instead went back to you know back to New Zealand, and I got them. I had less than a week's notice that they were coming. I didn't have a car. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any other clothes, any other things. But actually, it was a beautiful time because the moment I saw them again, it was like no time had passed, and they we were a family. We were a really broke, homeless family. You know, we were sleeping on the floor um, for the first week. I said, OK, we can afford mattresses, but not beds. We're all going to sleep in one room because there's only enough heat in the one room. But I'll get paid again in a week or in two weeks and then we can buy more. And so it felt like a camping trip. And people, you know, they gave us clothes, they gave us toys, uh, you know, these people who used to rent a batch to us said, hey, you can stay in the batch for free. And it was kind of like recognizing that all of that other stuff didn't matter as soon as I had my kids back and we were together as a family. So it was all okay, but I lost the will to fight. And so I signed the non-disclosure agreement and I thought this letter where they apologized for all the egregious things they'd done, including not allowing the, the travel policy so that I was actually physically separated from my kids for, for almost a year and couldn't even talk to them on the phone. I thought that that apology letter would shield me from further abuses in the family court. Every time she accused me of something egregious, I could just show the letter and be like, look, they've already acknowledged that she was the one who lied and manipulated the system and that I was only trying to protect my kids and I was never deemed a threat to them. And those were all lies that's in the letter. Clearly, I'm not the bad guy I made out to be. What I didn't appreciate was that letter didn't help me. What that letter did was it signals to the judge, big people are implicated here. This open, there's a lot of skeletons in this closet. Don't let this case go there. And so for the next six years, every time I was in the family court, and I don't need to go into the details because again, they'll, no matter what, they'll accuse me of violating the children's privacy. But every time I'm in the family court, all that's required is she makes reference to what happened back then. I defend myself. I show this letter 
And the judge slams me. You will not talk about corruption in my courtroom. You will not talk about abuse of power in my courtroom. And I'm like, I'm under oath. I'm telling the truth. Here's the evidence. Look at the evidence. And then when you do that, the judge punishes you, punishes you for not sort of being deferential when he tells you to shut up and to stop talking about corruption. And so what I learned was I had no power in the family court. If anything, it seemed like she had more power than ever. And all I can, the only thing that makes sense, and it's the reason why I'm talking to you now, you know, people, I'm sure I'll be accused of, you know, oh, look how vindictive he is. He's trying to expose his enemies. Well, if I was trying to expose people, I would have had this conversation five years ago. But what I've learned is that the only explanation for me is that because they broke the law seven and eight years ago, my, my ex-wife didn't break the law. She just walked into her boss's office and said, hey, I need a favor. Doing the favor was breaking the law. Everybody covering up for that guy was breaking the law. And all of the subsequent manufacturing the evidence and, and paying the legal bills and denying my children their travel, all of that, the officials broke the law, but she didn't. Well, she broke the Child Support Act that one time. But other than that, I think that because they broke the law and she knows where all the bodies are buried, paradoxically, even though they broke the law on her behalf, it gave her more power of because course. she can blackmail them all. Grant she Robinson's- doesn't have to blackmail them. All she has to do is say something that might expose this, and the judge will shut it down in a heartbeat. And I just Grant- get to in the family court. Grant Robertson was your local MP yeah. and did a great job as your local MP. And well, then to, he did. Yes. Yeah. In order to do that job, he had to listen to your story. Yeah. You spoke to him. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, I I was so indebted, so grateful because I was so desperate. He was the first person to actually step up and help me. I and, would love and, to say that I still feel that way, but I reached out to him again two years ago. And no, I think in maybe you'll have as as an MP, you will have this experience, although you were never an MP of a party in power. Yes, I was. And I was a minister. So I know exactly his position. Well, okay. Well, my my experience then is that opposition MPs are an entirely different animal than government MPs. When you're in the opposition, you can be courageous and you can challenge things. And the moment you're in government, your job is to cover up. And so I will praise the Grant Robertson of seven or eight years ago. But I reached out to him again last year in a, in a, in a, a matter that was far more egregious. It was actually about my children's welfare in real time. And now, nah. yes, and I said to um, him, I said, look, this woman is blackmailing the government with, 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 the, yes. with the knowledge of what happened before. You're the only minister who knows all about it. Yeah. You know, clearly Here's there's a the difficulty. Here. Here's the difficulty. And I, Good on Grant Robertson, MP. Good on him because he spent the time with you and he was sufficiently outraged as any human being would be simply to do the right thing and ask some questions. When Minister McCulley got the questions and said, what's going on here? He discovered there was a problem and ordered it to be cleaned up, which isn't the same as being resolved, right? Then there's a difficulty that becomes because I went from being an MP to being a minister. 
right? And that's what Grant Robertson's done. Now, I was never a high-flying minister like Grant Robertson, but you have a different job. And technically, it's a problem because Mm. you're now representing the Crown. Yeah. When you're an MP, you're representing your constituents in Parliament. Maybe even holding the Crown to account. Yes, and now you are the Crown. Right. right? Everything he does. So when it comes to your case, the very best thing that he can do, and I tragically found myself having to do this because otherwise you're guilty of what you suffered in reverse, if you know what I mean, because you become the crown taking a side. And so the very best thing that you can do is to say, oh, Fred, um, you're an MP. Could you look after Ben for me? I can't tell you any more. It's the best you can do. Because you, as you as a minister, right, you are, you're the boss of bosses. And if you have any sense of decency, you can no longer pursue a case. It's crazy. It is crazy. Because that would be to do what your wife did to you. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. Mm. And, um, Oh, my God. Um, Now, having said that, you know, they can say, here, Fred, I looked at this when I was an MP. Trust me, this guy's kosher. And uh, anything you can do and background, I can provide you. But technically, he's 24-7 a Minister of the Crown representing the New Zealand government's interests on behalf of everyone. And so you can't get it. Anyway, it's a technical point but it's it is this weird weakness um in our constitutional makeup and people don't distinguish it's very hard when you're an mp to be a minister and looking after your constituents um very very hard you can sort of do it when it's not your area but when you're a minister of finance and deputy prime minister you almost can no longer look after constituents now in the old days you could i mean it's just it's it's a cock-up but um, good on him originally, bad on him now. And well, maybe not me. on him. I mean, the truth is now it shouldn't. It ultimately, these things shouldn't have to go to ministers. The system no. should work. No. And of course, tell I haven't me this. got to the real punchline of how of of of, of what's happened more recently. And again, I'm, I'm going to be try to be very cognizant of the privacy of my children. But but anybody that knows my children already knows at least this much, which was that ultimately, and it was we. I mean, I would say we, and others will say I, but experience so much outright like like injustice, even abuse at the hands of the family court that we completely lost faith in the idea that they that they would ever do anything for us, you know. And, uh, and you know, every time we were served with another without notice court order, my oldest son would have this horrendous anxiety that it was going to say that we, they were taken away from me forever. And he said this in, in an affidavit to the court more recently, which is that, you know, he always knew that it was bad, but every time the court order comes, you know, somebody, somebody knocks on the door and serves papers, it's, it's always without notice. The children are never consulted, which is illegal. Um, and 
ultimately always mm-hmm. bad for us. So at one point I had, I'd mentioned that, you know, we have a very strong attachment to our, our home and family here and the children have a big extended family. And it's a, and, a, and Judge Walsh had recognized, he had said, you know, South Dakota is a part of the children's identity and had enshrined their right to travel to see their, their family here in, in a court order with cost took, took me God knows how many tens of thousands of dollars and two defended hearings to get it. But at least my children's attachment to here was, 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 was allowed. I'm in South Dakota at the moment. That's what I say here. Um, so we would travel every year. Um, COVID comes along and we get this without notice order saying the kids can never leave the country again without their mother's uh, agreement. Well, COVID or not, whether you're scared of COVID or not, never again is ridiculous. You could just say while the borders are closed, but then the original court order comes back in place, um, you know, when, when, when the borders open up again. But because I had presumed that we were still going to travel because I wasn't afraid of COVID, that made me a crazy person. And therefore, only crazy people aren't scared of COVID. Therefore, he shouldn't be allowed to travel. And the children um, should have the right to see their family in America um, removed permanently. And that came down without notice, without talking to the children and became permanent. You know, there was another one where, what's that? The word was never. Because well, it was indefinite here. anyway. It was indefinite, like it didn't expire when the when the borders opened up again. And so I knew that was never. I just lost the results of two defended hearings, which were to guarantee my children's right to still see their family, which is again very strongly enshrined in New Zealand law. Until you invoke safety, and of course, this is the great parallel with all the COVID thing, right? At every stage, as long as you invoke safety, you ignore all of the rest of the law, and. The threat to safety doesn't have to be real. You can present evidence to demonstrate that it's not real, but the evidence doesn't matter. And, 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 and then the, and, and the results are permanent. So all the emergency powers that governments can claim, and then they keep them even when the emergency gone. The same system happened to me on a personal level in the family court, where she would seek these, these without notice orders on an emergency basis. And my children's rights are just getting stripped away over and over again. And then, Actually, here's one that I can talk about without violating my children's privacy. Actually, this is outrageous if you got the time for it. Child support and property court. And, it, you know, because it's only about money, nobody's going to say I'm violating my children's privacy, right? It's just, it was so outrageous. Um, it took, I think, three or four years to finally resolve this because the original jurisdiction thing would took forever. And then resolving the fact that we really were separated on the date we signed the agreement, not the arbitrary later date that she tried to impose under New York law. You know, so it took ages to finally get in front of a property court judge. And, and I was broke. I mean, my God, this is expensive. Lawyers are expensive. And, but under the law, you know, applying the normal IRD formula for child support and looking what, you know, how much money we had and whatever, you know, she had spent all our money and maxed out our credit cards while we were, while I was in Antarctica. And that was all demonstrable. I had the bank records. So under the law, following the IRD formula, she probably owed me 30 some thousand dollars. I was like, thank God, I'll at least have enough money to actually hire a lawyer again, because I knew that I needed to fight for my children's rights again. And I wasn't wasn't succeeding representing myself. Um, after all this time, I go to property court and make a long story short. I mean, the whole thing was just absurd. But at the end of it, 
it couldn't have been more blatant. Like this is the one where she kept referring to all these allegations of, well, you know, MFAT acted on the basis of secret information that he was a danger to the threat of his children back when we were in New York. All of this irrelevant stuff from way back during the abuse of power, but just to manipulate the judge. And then, of course, I present the evidence the contrary. And then he slams me down because I'm I'm saying something that's that he doesn't want on the record of his court because it's about abuse of power and corruption. Um, at the end of it, I get the judgment. And effectively, it said, well, we're just going to pretend that you made twice as much money as you actually made. We're just going to pretend that she made half as much money as she actually made. We're going to pretend that all of your accrued annual leave during the marriage is marital property, but all of her accrued annual leave during the marriage is private property. We're going to pretend that you could have you know, rented out your South Dakota home for all this money. Um, and it's all pure profit with no mortgage, no insurance, no expenses, whatever. We're going to pretend that you owned the property, even though she actually owned it. So if anybody could have rented this house, she could have done it just as much as me. We're going to pretend that your frequent flyer miles are worth $10,000, even though basically what happened was she could assert anything and unless i could prove that it wasn't true the judge would accept it so she said the frequent fire miles over ten thousand dollars i said to the judge i was like well that's ridiculous but also there's no value because it's during covid these 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 planes aren't flying anyway well you can't prove it's not ten thousand it is you owe her five though it was oh and also we're gonna we're gonna pick this year but we're not going to pick that year, even though Judge Walsh said you're going to do both years, because in this year, you know, um, the, ch the children were with her more than you. But in this year, they were with you more than her. And, you know, the child support liability would reverse. So basically all these ridiculous assumptions with no basis in law. And at the end of it, I owe her like $14,000 instead of her owing me 30, 35. It couldn't have been more outrageous if he had just written across the front in red marker. We are powerful and you are powerless, and we're going to keep hurting you until you accept that you have to stop challenging people more powerful than you. This was in the hearing where he shouted at me from the bench saying, you will not mention corruption in my courtroom. And I just realized you can't win because there's no accountability. And you're not allowed to talk about it because it's all sealed behind this magic firewall of anybody that talks about the family court in public is abusing the privacy of children. And ultimately, when I realized that my ex's home was not a good, safe environment for my children to be living in, my oldest son was going to leave the country. And he didn't want to leave behind his brother and sister because of things that he had seen. We made the decision to just leave. So my children and I, we kind of fled the country illegally. We didn't tell anybody we were leaving. And we got on a plane and we flew back to our home here. So now I'm the kidnapper, right? Now that's, now that's, that's, that's also a hate convention removal. But we made the strategic decision that we would have a better chance of getting justice under the Hague Convention than we would in New Zealand, because under the Hague Convention, they're guaranteed the right to testify. So we did that a year and a half ago. And so now I'm the kidnapper. Well, it didn't work. Um, kids were taken out of school here. Just, just back up the truck, Ben, because I want to just yep. get this. Yeah. Your son... By my calculations, your oldest son is 19, 18? 18 now, yes. So he's 
to all intents and purposes an adult? He's free, yeah. And he he was the one that was going to be going overseas. He did go overseas. He got a high-flying scholarship to this international boarding high school called United World College. But he wouldn't go and leave his sister and brother. That's what he told me, yeah. He said, and this is when I realized it was actually sort of worse there than I thought. I, I, I had always said that, look, kids, I don't want to talk about your mother. And I don't want you to talk about me to her. I don't want you stuck in the middle. Um, and I thought that was the best we could hope for with a relationship this toxic. And your son, ultimately it meant that I didn't realize quite how bad things had become. Yeah. So to your son, at least, and your testimony to us, your son says, I've got this brilliant chance to leave home, have this wonderful scholarship, but I'm not prepared to leave my brother and my sister here alone. Yeah. Without yeah. Me. yeah. So your son is a chip off the block, may I say. <laughs> a beautiful man. He's a very <laughs> look, I'm gonna I can't talk about him in this context without almost crying. I'm just gonna warn you. Um even like talking to the highway patrol, the t- patrol on the way when, when, about like when my kids were taken away and I was talking to the police, I'm super rational and super clear. And I can talk articulately until I start talking about my oldest son and then I lose it. So he is the most remarkable. Like you will never meet a more incredible 18 year old. And this all happened when he was 16, 17. He, I mean, he's just hardworking and principled and, you know, intelligent, number one kid in the country to get this scholarship to go overseas and devoted to his brother and sister. And for, I mean, good looking. I mean, he had everything going for him. And when I, when I heard him talk about what it had done to him living there, I thought, oh my God, like they're not going to make it without him. And so I said, I said, I'll get him out. And it was a rash thing to do. It was a, it was a desperate thing to do. But we all, we all got on a plane and didn't say goodbye to anyone and came here. And thought that we were going to, you know, start a new life. And, they, you know, two weeks later, they called their mother, told her where they were and why. Uh, I'm preparing for a hate convention case, and instead, there's some other loophole law here in the United so States. So your your three children were prepared to come with you. They, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously, you don't kidnap against their will a 12, 14, and 17 year old. I mean, the 17 year old was getting on the plane of his own volition, but coincidentally, it all happened kind of at the same time. Yeah. But so yeah, I, get it. I, I mean, I get it. so it was a big deal, and like they, whenever <laughs> at times they're with you, they're sleeping on a friend's floor on a bed, sort of thing. So it's not like so they come to you now. I've got it right, technically, supposedly kidnapped, but now we're going to be in the Hague. Then what happened? Um, they started school here, and and we 
thought we were going to, you know, start a life here. Um, we, 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 had, we still had the home here. I hadn't lost it in the, in the family court, with, or in the court, which is great. My, my family's close. So, you know, we have some support here. And so, yeah, we were going to start a life here. And they, you know, they told their mother why, where they were and why. And a week later, two weeks later, I think it was, um, the sheriff shows up at my door and he says, your kids are gone. <laughs> I said, what? I was like, they have a right to testify under the hate convention. Nope. There's some other loophole law that applies between into different states in the United States um, where, you know, you don't wait around for hate convention. You just send them back with it with no testimony. And that's what they, that's what they used. And so the kids were just gone. They didn't get to testify. Um, and so now I was obviously quite desperate. Um, and so when, they, when he said they were gone, technically, where were your kids when he said that? They were with you, right? The, the, no, the police had taken them out of school and and taken them to, to where she was. And they said they didn't want to go, but the police said, sorry, her paperwork checks out. Um, and that includes your what then eighteen or seventeen year old? No, no, he's already at his, his he's already at his boarding school in another state. So okay, so I called him and told him what had happened, and he got on the phone and called the police, and and so this all got very complicated, and it's still complicated because now we're still separated. Um, I don't want to again, like I'm not going to talk about my children's testimony or the reasons why they wanted to leave. I think it's you know it's. Um, I mean, everything I've said now, everybody that knows them already knows that much of the story and that's enough. But what has happened subsequently and the reason why I'm talking to you, it suggests that every single public institution in New Zealand can be corrupted as long as you have powerful people who have already covered for you in the past. You know, the Wellington police, there needs to be an investigation. You know, they unfiled, they unfiled a report of concern about children, including evidence filed. And now they say the file number doesn't even exist. I mean, I had the file number and if I OIA it, they can't find it. It's just, they, so they deleted the evidence. And for four months, I used the OIA trying to get records of my, the, the police's interactions with my children. And I know of a number of interactions the police had with my children and there's no paperwork. And I actually believe it's true. At first, I thought they were just hiding them from me. But at one point, I, when the OIA came up negative about something that I knew existed, I confronted the woman directly. And, and she said, well, could you at least tell me what the, you know, this constable pain that you refer to, is, he, is it a man or a woman? Which, you know, which precinct does he work in? And I said, well, how can you not even know that? if it's a man or a woman or where it works, if you have the file number, it's the person who, who, who record file. It was, they actually didn't know who had recorded the, the report of concern because it had been deleted. And so that made me realize they really have, somebody really has scrubbed the police record of, of I, I presume also of the other interactions with my children. I'm their legal guardian. I would be entitled to the information, but the, the information has never been recorded. It gives the impression that there's more than one chain of command for the Wellington police. Like, like there's the, the normal chain of command that gets recorded. But then there's the other one where my police will give my, the police will give my children an escort out of MIQ to their home. And there's no record of that. They'll interrogate my son about how I was able to contact him on the phone when I wasn't supposed to. And there's no record of that. I think it's inappropriate for 
police to be interrogating a 14-year-old, but that's a separate question. The most obvious thing, which is, I, <laughs> I already told you I was arrested at the airport when I showed up. As I was getting ready to leave the country, uh, my family at home were like, my God, you know, the police will probably stop you from leaving too. And I kind of laughed, you know, but my, my family, they're, they're aware of the things that have happened. And so I was anxious. I didn't let my ex know what day I was leaving. I deliberately misled her lawyer as to what day I was leaving the country. And then I'm, you know, go to the airport. I, you know, check in my luggage and I get through. And after I've gone through passport control and I'm all the way to the gate, I send my brother text message. Uh, so far, so good, bro. You know, I'm almost on the plane. And he actually texted back. He said, you know, text me again when they've actually closed the doors of the plane. Until then, I won't actually trust that you're out. Well, I hadn't slept much the night before. I had a lot to do. So I had a bit of time before the plane left. So I lay down, take a nap. Somebody's tapping my shoe. I wake up. There's two police officers standing over me. And they said, are you dark? I said, yes. I said, will you step this way, please? And I, I admit, I got angry. I didn't show it. I, I stayed composed, but I was like, what the hell? And I said, no. I said, if you want to talk to me, you're going to do it right here in front of these witnesses. And I think that kind of put them back because people were paying attention. You know, why are the police coming to a, you know, to an airport gate? And then, and they said, well, you know, you're scheduled to appear in court in three weeks' time. Do you have a return plane ticket? I said, no, I don't. They said, that's a problem. I said, that's not a problem. Are you overruling the judge? The judge said I could attend remotely. And they said, well, can you prove it? And I said, who are you to override the judge? And then I kind of woken up. I wasn't very coherent. And I said, actually, just who are you full stop? What's your name? And the police officers wouldn't give me their names. Oh my goodness. So I took out my phone. I said, look, I'm going to record this phone call. And they immediately started to leave. And so I have this recording of me following the police officers through the airport saying, why is it that you're you know, interrogating me about my intention to return and, and what, you know, on whose jurisdiction, on whose authority are you here at all? And they walked away, refused to give me their names. Now, if it's, they it's, had the legal authority to stop me from leaving the country, why didn't they do it? It's and like if it's they didn't have the legal authority to stop me from leaving the country. Say again? It's like a black book operation. It's off the books. Yeah. And I, I get the impression there's an awful lot of Wellington police that's off the books. Like escorting my children out of MIQ, that was strange too. The police should have been very busy. It was during the parliament occupation, yet they spared two police cars, which, I mean, effectively, it was it's kind of intimidating for my kids, you know. Um, OT, Ministry for Children, are redacting all of the children's testimony, telling me that it's for the privacy of children. <laughs> they're my kids, you know, and I, and I know what they're redacting. They're redacting their testimony that would look incriminating because OT didn't listen to them. Um, nobody has ever listened to them. My oldest son submitted an affidavit and the family court judge struck it from the record. He submitted another affidavit and he struck it from the record. So it took more than nine months for that, for my oldest son's testimony to actually appear in the record of the court by then OT and the court psychologists have already issued their judgments. So the game now is that clearly I'm the crazy one because I had the audacity to try to take my children out of the country, you know, against the, against the court order. Um, even more egregious when the judge said that I wasn't allowed to talk to my children. I had the audacity to defy that and call my son on the phone when I wasn't allowed because they were I mean, they had nobody. 
they, they said before they left that their fear was to be in New Zealand alone with me and their brother both gone and locked out because the COVID, the border was still closed. It's an interesting question, though. How did she get back in with two kids when the border was still closed? Some people don't follow rules, right? Um, yeah, she had been seconded to the Ministry of Health and apparently knew the right people. So she got quarantine beds when normal New Zealanders were still locked out. Two of those quarantine beds were from kids who said they didn't want to go. And now the game and the reason why I'm willing to talk to you is that and they said, this is why, and now this is why it starts to have relevance for people more than me, because I don't want to be selfish to say I'm just airing my sob story and, and trying to get scrutiny on me. This is relevant for anybody in New Zealand who is willing to use their own head. The evidence that I am what's the, um, narcissistic personality disorder with paranoid ideation. Okay. So this is what the court psychologist is saying as, as justification to why, even I, if I move back to New Zealand, I shouldn't have access to my children. The nar- evidence for me having narcissistic personality disorder is that I think I know what's better for, best for my kids more than the judge does. That I think I'm apparently, God forbid, he thinks he's smarter than the system. The evidence that I'm paranoid is that I don't trust the system. And I even, I even when I said talk to this court psychologist, I even said to her, I was like, you know, it'd be really easy for you to just call me paranoid because it sounds crazy. It sounds like a movie plot. Nobody would believe it. I said, but I have evidence for every single thing I'm about to tell you. We're and talking then, to Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Ben Sharp. I've been so <laughs> intrigued that I forgot to keep listeners that have switched in. They'll think, what is going on? It's it's Dr. Ben Sharp, Rhodes Scholar. Terrestrial ecologist, scientist, beautiful man and beautiful father, uh, been through the mill. And you're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Real Check Radio. And I want to go back just for one second to your the psychological personality that they detected on you. What was it? A narcissistic? Narcissistic like- personality disorder with paranoid ideation. Hang on, I've got to write this down, Ben. Personality disorder with paranoid ideation. But I mean, imagine the chilling effect of setting a precedent that anybody who doesn't trust the government is paranoid, therefore should lose their children. Well, here's the funny thing, right? I'd known this to happen when I was an MP, but I always thought, it was a, you know, picking off individuals like you. But through COVID, everyone got picked off that questioned the government. You know, well, we were, I was, the parallels I, with COVID are actually kind of striking, even though we yes. haven't talked about COVID, because you're right, it's how they operate. I was, I became um, a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> oh, I called that too. Hey, don't 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 plead guilty to that one, Rodney. You yeah, should I was, see all the things they say about conspiracy theorists. I was a conspiracy theorist, Nazi adjust adjacent sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so exactly. you were. I just love you've got it officially that you're a narcissistic paranoid personality disorder with paranoid ideation, right? And and you're narcissistic. Paranoid. No, narcissistic. What was it? Narcissistic personality disorder. Yes, because you're narcissistic because 
you thought you might be in a better position to understand what your kids need than experts. Yeah, essentially. Like they're saying that the fact that I'm not telling them that they know better than me about yes, what's course. good for my kids. Well, we the understand. Fact that I'm, not apolo- I'm not apologetic enough. They want me saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry that I tried what to do get I my need to do? country. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and then, what, and it was parent, a mistake. It didn't work. And here's a funny thing right. given what you've told us here this morning, you're paranoid because. You suspect the system might be tilted against you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. He doesn't trust the system, and he thinks that there's all this high-level government corruption. And I'm like, look at Exhibit B. Here's an, here's here's an apology for all of this high-level government corruption. Well, no, we don't look at the exhibits. We judge you guilty for having the audacity to say it out loud. And that's what's remarkable. It's evidence-free. Like no matter how much evidence I present. In fact, presenting the evidence just makes them want to punish you harder because you're not supposed to challenge. You're supposed to apologize and and take your uh, medicine. Right. And and the thing is, it, and it's almost funny in a, in a Kafkaesque world, this this testimony will be held up as proof. They'll say, aha, see, I told you he doesn't sound apologetic and narcissists never plead guilty to being narcissists and, and all i can and say what is but what about the evidence but what if, if, I'm, if the government has if i if i don't have reason to if i don't have reason to think the government is corrupt you know okay who canceled my children's passports then right who erased a police file that had already been filed um you know who in ot deemed that it was okay for my children to not have any adult advocate through that entire process who in ot decided that they're going to do an investigation but refused to interview my oldest son the only witness to what happens inside that house is my oldest son they refuse to talk to him oh and that's an investigation what a joke now um but of course Dr. Ben Sharp is so dangerous that he can talk to Rodney Hyde and his listeners and persuade them that well, he's the one. Right. That's the See? victim. Yeah. That's and, and how this, good he is. Yeah. And, and this is the narrative. The fact that all three of my children will without going into the details of the testimony, say things that are consistent and that are consistent with each other and also consistent with what I'm saying, that itself is proof that I have turned them against their mother. Yes. And turning them against their mother is abuse. God, you're dangerous. You're therefore, dangerous. I'm abusive. Yes. And therefore, I'm really good at brainwashing my kids because they didn't even change their testimony after three months that they weren't allowed to talk to me. And look Man, at I'm this. Good. Look at this. He is not raising his voice. He's not getting angry. That's how, that's how good he is. And of course, right. if you raised yourself and got angry, they'd lock you up. Right, right. Well, and, and the thing is, like, again, I'll, like I said this once before, I was like, I wouldn't want anybody to judge whether I'm credible or not just based on my persona because yeah. I have dealt with. I mean, I tell you what, I traveled the world with these diplomats when I was representing New Zealand in the Antarctic Commission and Convention, and they, they're good. There are people who can who can lie just as convincingly as I'm telling you the truth right now. 
However, there is such a thing as evidence. And it's just shocking to me that I have never yet found that evidence matters for anything in the court. Uh, I now have a criminal record. My criminal record, I, I, was, I was charged with calling my phone, sorry, calling my son on the phone when I wasn't allowed to. And that's a violation of a protection order, which is the same criminal charge you would have if you were an abusive, drunken ex-husband, like banging down your ex's door, yeah. threatening her, right? Violating a protection order. It sounds really bad. What I did was I called him on the phone. The judge said I wasn't allowed to. And when I went to court to defend myself, I wanted to submit the application for the protection order to say, well, judge, look, this protection order doesn't even correspond to the law because I wasn't even accused of family violence. I was accused of trying to help my children understand their legal rights under the OT system to have their testimony heard at a time when they were in quarantine and I, you know, and she didn't want me talking to them. And therefore I was dangerous talking to the children because they, if talking to me, they might know how to access their legal rights. Therefore we need a protection order to say they can't talk to him. And, the, and it was granted even in the application. It, I mean, obviously, I can't be physically violent or in any other way violent when the when the borders are closed and I'm on the other side of the ocean. So the idea that a protection order was required for anybody's safety is a little bit silly when I'm locked out of the country and she's not. But it wasn't there wasn't even a pretense of even emotional violence or intimidation or any of that. The application said explicitly he's talking to the kids and the kids are becoming defiant. Well, it's catch 22, isn't it? Hmm. It's total catch-22, yeah. and but your children's lives and your relationship with your children, which is the deepest thing that a human being can ever have in their life. Yeah. And, you know, we've been separated now for, for a year and a half. I, I did go to New Zealand in, in March and April to see them. Um, when I, I mean, under... It, ridiculously restrictive conditions. I only got to see each child every second weekend, not at the same time, because that would be dangerous. Right. Um, and I even said to the judge, I was like, you know, it'd be nice to have some reassurance that you're not dangling my children as bait just to have me arrested at the airport. Um, and he said, I can assure you there is no warrant for your arrest. You will not be arrested at the airport. I get there. I swipe my passport. They're like, Oh, step this way, sir. And I got arrested. And I was like, wait, are they allowed to just lie? <laughs> but of course, when you read it, it says there is no warrant for arrest issued from the family court. Right. So, like, technically, he didn't mislead me. And maybe he could even say it was a mistake. OK, whatever. But the farce is that. So you came into New Zealand to see your children. Yeah. I had a court order saying I was allowed to see them that night. And you were arrested at the airport. Yes. Um, I mean, I was only in jail for a day. And to be fair, like, honestly, I, I, I started to get optimistic that the criminal court is less corrupt than the family court, or at least maybe Auckland is less corrupt than Wellington. Because the, the, the criminal court judge in, in Auckland, he was lovely. I was like, my God, I need more judges like you down in Wellington. He was like, this is ridiculous. These are minor charges. This guy's got no criminal record. He's just here to see his kids. He's got a court order to prove it. Let him go. 
And, and then the Wellington police tried to say that I shouldn't be allowed to live where I wanted to live because it's too close to her. I mean, the thing is, is as soon as it says violation of a protection order, people assume that it's about violence. Yes. And therefore, I'm an abusive, violent person with an abusive, violent history. Without the detail, is it no, I called my son on the phone when they told me I wasn't allowed. But they don't read the details. Oh, he must be a violent person. Therefore, he can't, you know, you need to seize his passports. Um, the judge what? didn't seize my passports. But what's your relationship with your oldest son now? It's wonderful. He's th- that boy is thriving. He is doing so. He's incredible. He was here with me this summer. Um, I mean, yeah, sorry, you're gonna get me talking about my son. I'm gonna go off the deep end about how. But he is. He's an incredible young man. He is so thriving. He's finally free, psychologically free, physically free. He's making good money. He was a firefighter here this summer. You heard that Canada was burning up. So they sent him to Canada to fight fires. And so he's independent. He's going to university, one of the best universities in the country, paying for it himself. Cause of course I don't have any money, but um, you know, got a big shot scholarship because he's a high flyer and he's got a beautiful girlfriend and a beautiful life and he's doing so well. And the only he thing. He must love you. Uh, we're, we're wonderful. We're wonderful. And he loves his brother and sister. And he flew back to see them last year, um, you know, independently made his own just decision about that, bought his own plane ticket. Like he's, he's, he's independent. He's already on his own at 18 and he's, and he's strong enough to decide, make his own decisions about such things. But yeah, no, we're wonderful. We're wonderful. And he's the one that tells me, dad, don't worry. You know, in the long game, we'll all be together. You will In be. the long game, you don't have to worry. But my daughter's only 13. And three years before the family court, you know, can't stop her from living where she wants. And in three years, you know, she loses contact with all of her family here because they won't let it. You know, my, previously, my children had the right to travel here every year. And we've got grandparents and uncles and cousins and, and family and friends. And. And now because I'm the big bad kidnapper and I'm the narcissistic paranoid guy, the best I could hope for is every second weekend, two months a year. And I just don't think it's acceptable because she deserves, whether she wants to move here or not. And I, and I would, even if I had full custody and she said she wanted to still live in New Zealand, I would, I would let that happen because I respect my children's right to choose. Right. But being basically they forced my hand like once i'm officially diagnosed as the mentally ill abusive one with a criminal record i don't i don't my kids are not able to have a relationship with me or my family here until they're 16 each and if she was you know if she wasn't the youngest you know if if it was just my son at 15 i would probably just say we might as well wait this out but but I need to at least have my, our legal rights to a relationship recognized. And it's not going to happen to the family court. You know, this judge cannot, cannot acknowledge reality because if he does, he's guilty because they've covered up for her. And a lot, and I think because they're covering up for this other high court judge in every judgment going back eight years. And so they have to keep doubling down on the same pattern, which is that she always tells the truth and I always lie. Now, well, now it's I and my oldest son and my younger children all lie because the moment they acknowledge that that's not the case, it's like, well, why did you let this woman manipulate you so bad for you? Um, 
yeah, I was just saying that I think that if it wasn't for the fact that my daughter is only 13 and won't be free to make her own decisions out, out free of the family court for three more years, I mean, technically by the law, she her, her voice should be heard now, but that just never happens for us. And now that I've been labeled the bad guy officially by these diagnoses, that's not going to happen. Um, I feel like the only way to get any accountability is to essentially challenge these people to to either stand by their their positions or have an independent investigation and i'm do i'm only doing that for my daughter and and you know maybe if she actually has when she has a choice she'll say look my life is stable enough now and i have my friends here and i still want to live in new zealand then i would respect that but previously they had the right to travel here and be with family and see me etc and under the current diet no the the emotional disorder diagnosis and the paranoia diagnosis, I won't even get that. And I think I'm not interested. In, this is, I, I don't talk to you because I'm trying to expose people for revenge. I don't think there's ever going to be any accountability anyway. I don't think that. I've never seen it. Um, but what I do know is that the last time when I truly could have lost my children forever, the one thing that changed the system was the threat of exposure. And so I would maybe say to the people in OT and the people in the police, you know, tell us who you're going to make accountable and get that person to swear that everything is above board. And if, and if they don't mean it, they're accountable for lying. And I think if somebody were actually accountable for looking into everything that happened, the OT report would very dramatically change because no reasonable person can read the like the first three pages of their report that actually show what my children say and then read the conclusions and think it's the same report even. It's so clownish, but there's just no accountability. So in order for my daughter not to be completely separated from her Fanau for the next three years, I'm willing to lay all this out and say, if I'm the paranoid one, then you shouldn't be afraid of an independent investigation. If it's all crazy, you shouldn't be afraid to have an investigation. In fact, I know the Public Service Commission had an investigation of that thing eight years ago, and they buried it. It exists. That should be public now. You know, Grant Robertson called for a high court review so that uh, so that the some precedents would be set. Legally, if a precedent isn't set, they can do this to the next guy, too. Having it all sealed in non-disclosure agreements means that they can keep doing it. Would well, another MP would another MP picking up the cudgel from the opposition assist, do you think? I don't know. I mean, a whole slew of MPs know about this because I contacted all of them when the when the, when the police took my kids and nobody stepped up. My goodness. Like honestly, my, my, my experience from the first time was that an MP is the only one that could help me. So it was my first port of call. And they said, We're taking this seriously, and we referred it to OT. And then the OT investigation, like that'll I said, be I mean, the, that'll be the back channel. The, well, there's more to this case than we can tell you. Don't touch this case. That's complicated. Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, I mean, the thing is, and of course, to a naive audience, that's an easy one because, yeah, I'm a kidnapper, right? Oh my god, he was so crazy. He took his kids out of the country without uh, without permission. But the truth is, and yeah, it was a desperate, stupid thing to do, I guess. But we were that desperate because we well, knew. We knew we would never get justice in the family. Well, you've court. got me on your side, Ben. If that's any help, 
I don't know what well, I can do. But anyway, I think, like I said, you're a very beautiful man. You're the man I would like to be. <laughs> no, I mean well, that. I mean, okay. I mean that very genuinely because you've been tested. You've been tested and found true, and you've kept your mind. And you should meet my sons, Rodney. Honestly, my fort, my 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 younger son, even. Oh, don't make me cry. I was so scared for him, and in, and now he's you know he's reading Stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, and talking about how when you know when bad things happen to you, you know it's it, 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 enduring. It makes you the man that you're going to be, and others have always endured worse, and it just makes you stronger. Which sounds like a stereotype, but he lived it, and he's strong, and he's saying, "Don't worry, Dad." So no, you can say you admire me. I admire my my children. Well, in that case, I admire your children too. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a real deep talk with this morning with Dr. Ben Sharp, road scholar, boxer, fighter, <laughs> fighter for his kids and for justice. It moved it moved me, and I'm sure it moved you. It's a hell of a story, and it tells you of I can't say it's the underbelly of New Zealand because this is on the top of New Zealand. What is it? The blob, that big, horrible blob that is unaccountable, that has all the power in New Zealand, just bureaucrats, actually, who have our money and demand our respect. And they will crush an individual like a bug, and they will smash a family, like they'd swat a bunch of flies to maintain the system. And that's what's been revealed to us today. I have no doubt that what Ben is telling us is the absolute God's truth. And Ben, I've been on a journey on this show and become a Christian, which I never thought I would say, and I'm very happy to say it, that I'm a Christian. I love being with Christians, but it's been a tough journey for me. And someone, several people have written in and suggested to me that I should pray. And I haven't been able to because I'm very self-conscious about it. And um, But tonight, I'm going to pray for the first time in my life. And I'm going to pray for you and your family. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, thank you. Um, my I don't first really ever prayer. That. My first ever prayer well, will be for you and your family because that is something that I can do. And <clears throat> um, people have emailed in and texted me and told me they're praying for me. And funny enough, it's been an enormous comfort. And uh, what you've told me today and shared with us is a true blessing because your struggle was a human struggle and we've been the people you've chosen to share it with. And I appreciate that. And we want you to stay in touch with us at RCR and the family here that we have. And you will be in our prayers. You'll be in mine. And um, 
stay in touch because there'll be a lot of people that want to hear how you get on and they want to hear as best you can share with us how your sons and daughter progress and you're a beautiful beautiful man you're on real talk with rodney hyde please text us at 2057 send me an email at inbox at rallycheck.radio you may want to share a message in your prayers with ben and if you send them and i will forward them to him because i'm sure that will matter thank you for listening today it's been quite a story and um a tough story but boy We've lived something here today. Thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney. Thank thank you, Rodney. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.